hello, it's another Saturday, which means another TetraCast. I am Brian Vitali, and joining me today are George Foster. Hello, everyone. James Galizio. Hey, guys. And Adam Vitali. Hello. So uh, after a very quiet week last week, we're back to a pretty normal week with like a, a normal amount of announcements. Like uh, it looks like a kind of a normal volume of uh, things to talk about and a normal number of cast members on to discuss RPGs. So this is going to be a very normal podcast. At least that's the intention. We'll see if that's where it ends up. Uh, so we are right in the middle of some Gamescom, IGN, late weird summer of E3 stuff still going on. So that's actually where a lot of these announcements stem from. So how do we feel so far about how this summer has gone in terms of weird virtual digital distribution of all these announcements? Definitely wasn't ideal. It's been a bit messy, hasn't it? it? It's nice that there's still stuff to announce, but it almost feels like we've just we should all just take the year off. It's it's just weird because it kind of they tell us when to expect things and then it ends up like not working that way and then some things get announced when we don't expect them at all. Uh I do think that in the long run it'll be good to have some of these marketing arms and uh you know these little Pico PR, you know, relations businesses learning how to have different avenues for you know, reaching out to influencers, reaching out to websites like us, because it's even though we'd like to be able to meet in person and we desperately miss it, it's not always possible. So I think it is kind of like growing pains. And it's just glad that this didn't happen like 15 years ago when it would have been way more, <laughs> way more analog. But enough about that. Let's just get into talking about what we've been playing this week. So uh, I don't want to go first for good reason. I don't know if, uh, George, since you missed last week, I don't know what, since you uh, have two weeks of basically whatever you've been doing, so I don't know if you have anything in particular that you uh, want to talk about. Oof, I'm trying to think. The last two weeks have been a bit of a blur. You uh, you did put up a, a review for us on the website for a certain game. Oh, that, are you allowed sure. to talk about that? Yes, I did. There you go. Yes, I am. Um... I hadn't planned on it. I completely forgot about Mortal Shell, uh, which is not indicative. <laughs> that, 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 is, that, uh, is that a good sign? I actually gave it an 8 out of 10. Um, I thought it was fantastic, but then once I was finished with it, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm done with that. Uh, so I just, I've, I completely forgot. Okay, Mortal Shell. Um, has to be best Dark Souls-esque game I've played that isn't Soulsborne. So like, I wouldn't count Bloodborne as Dark Souls-esque. I'd count that as like Soulsborne. What about um, Neo? Oh, good point. Did really like Neo. I still haven't finished Neo 2, but I did like the first. It's in the uh, upper okay. half of Souls-like games, is it? Maybe? There we go. Yeah, that that works. Um, yeah, I didn't really know what to go, what to think going in, because a couple of weeks ago I reviewed Hellpoint for the site, and that was only okay. Uh, there were some good points in that. And that just sort of took a lot of time. I, I was playing that for weeks on and off. And I was pretty done with the genre just because Hellpoint didn't really do that much to differentiate itself. So I was like, why do I, am I really going to do another Dark Souls-like game? Uh, but Mortal Shell 
really impressed me because it's actually only like an hour's long. Uh, it feels like it uses that time really well. So I know for some people, <clears throat> excuse me, for some people hearing 10 hours long is like a really bad thing. But I think the four of us would agree that the shorter the better for some games. Uh, we don't all have a lot of time to be pumping into these things. Uh, so just, just having like a brief focus experience was really cool. Um, but Mortal Shell, basically, it takes all of the elements of Dark Souls that work uh, and it tools around them a bit and introduces its own unique stuff that actually feels unique. So, not to bash on Hellpoint again, but that had a mechanic where you were orbiting a black hole so things would randomly appear in the space station depending on where you were and what the orbit was like, which sounds like a really cool idea, but the game didn't really do anything with it. It it doesn't really feel like you're ever experiencing anything different. I think you would have to you you would have to know that something has changed to actually be like, oh wow, okay, that's different. Otherwise it's just like maybe a, a slightly harder enemy is placed there. Whereas Mortal Shell goes, okay, we're doing hardening, we've got shells, and we're changing how healing works, and we're gonna focus on those three things. We're gonna make it a shorter experience and we're really gonna nail it. And I, I think they they did a fantastic job. So um, explain like I'm five what that is when you say hardening and shells. Uh, in all fairness, they're they're specific to the game, so it's not. Uh, uh, I really should have explained that first. Well, that's what, yeah, that's um, what I mean. So hardening, uh, your character basically has the ability to turn to stone, so to harden. Um, and you by holding down the left trigger, you harden, and that acts as sort of like. It's almost like a get out of jail free card because you will never take damage when you you've hardened. So when you're dealing with enemies, if you say you you miss an attack, usually in like a souls like you're either going to roll away or you're going to die. But in Mortal Shell, you can just harden, and then the next attack it will connect. If it hits you, it will usually give you a chance to uh, parry and attack them. So it basically just acts like a block. Uh, you can only use it sparingly, and it just feels a bit more a bit more forgiving. So when you're going up against the bosses and when you're fighting all the same enemies again because you've died, uh, you can just use the hardened to give yourself a bit of an advantage, which I liked. Like I, I enjoyed the challenge of the Soulsborne genre. I, I think that could be really fun. It's one of the more satisfying things about them. But when, when you've just played another game like it, you it's kind of nice to not suffer so much. Um you don't suffer so much. That's my that's my review of Mortal Shell. Uh, so, what is the um, the uh, shell mechanic? Is that the same thing, or the shells are sort of the the big story uh, thing? So, your character is like a a spirit between worlds, and you find these fallen soldiers. Uh, there's four of them in the game, and then you take over their body. Their body is the shell. Um, wow. And it oh, that amounts to basically having four different classes uh, to switch between. So you've got one who's really heavy on health. There's one who's got loads of stamina. Uh, there's more of like a balance one. And then there's one that can sort of teleport around a little bit. Um, and basically what happens is when you kill enemies, uh, you get tar, which acts like souls, but you also get insight. You insight's more important, and it basically lets you find out more about the shell that you've inhabited. 
So say you find like the first soldier you find, uh, I've forgotten the name now, but you, you find him, you don't know his name when you inhabit him. He's just like a, a nameless soldier. Uh, but then as you become more experienced with using the shell, um, which just is just by playing the game, you finally like you learn his name and then you can upgrade some of his abilities. Uh, so you get like a skill tree that goes out and each one drops a little bit of lore about the character, which is really oh, that's cool. That's kind of cool how it's like tied into yeah. like some behind the scenes story like re- revelations. Yeah, it's like it, it doesn't really, it, it follows the whole Soulsborne, uh, little bits of story shown through the environment and uh, some of the NPCs you interact with rather than I like, wonder if well, anyone's hey, gonna be listening to this and <laughs> be cringing at the use of Soulsborne. I'm okay with it, but because so many games are so clearly trying to use that framework. Yeah. yeah. This might be an unfair I, I, question, but if I were to ask you, why should I play this instead of waiting for Elden Ring to resurface at some point, what would you tell me? Uh, I would say, good luck waiting for Elden Ring, first and foremost. <laughs> um, <laughs> then I would say that the, the shells are a really cool mechanic. Uh, hardening is it's just like a, a really satisfying feeling gameplay mechanic that you really get some time to mess around with and then the biggest difference uh which i was just getting onto so that's a good segue uh is the way that they handle healing so basically you don't get an estus flask you you can pick mushrooms and there are like a few consumables in the environment that will heal you like roasted rats and stuff uh but they're not actually that helpful so when you're first going through an area, you'll be like, oh my god, Like, does this game expect me to heal off like these two mushrooms I found in the past hour that give me like a tiny bit of health back? Like, What the heck am I supposed to do? But the trick is that you're supposed to be parrying enemies. So about half an hour into the game, you get this item that when you press the button, and if you time it correctly, uh, you'll parry an enemy. And then if you do it with some resolve, which you get from parrying successfully, you can then do like a, a really powerful repost that will give you some of your health back. So it suddenly becomes learning the enemy's patterns like you would in any other game of the genre. New Soulsborne there, for the record. Um, and then using the parry to get health back as you go. Uh, it just, it's sort of hard to describe because I'm, I'm slowly tra- going into game feel. It's, it's a good incentive to learn how to parry because I have played Demon Souls, all three Dark Souls, and Bloodborne, and I have never been good at parrying because all three of those games, or five of those games, in different ways, you can just learn to use a shield instead. It's probably a lower skill ceiling, or you can just dodge a whole bunch, learn where your um your evade frames are. So I kind of never had to learn how to parry. But it sounds like in this exactly. game, if you want to be, if you want to have a good time, you have to learn how to parry. I'm sure there are people out there uh, who've done it without parrying, like no damage, no parry, uh, fist only runs or whatever. But <laughs> it feels really good. So it's really responsive. The timing is so like slight. So you really have to learn it. So it feels really good every time you do it. Uh, I would argue that it's actually probably one of the easier games of its type I've played. Because as soon as you do nail those parry windows, you, you don't really struggle that much. And none of the bosses were like particularly challenging compared to uh, 
the game I have most experience with probably Sekiro, which was really, 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 really hard. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just it's it's a game that knows what it's doing. It's really focused. It's not too long, and it's just really fun to play. Um, feels it feels like I, it's kind of just like a clever, smartly packaged based on your description. Anyway, here's like a shorter game where we we're trying to put our own twist on this and it doesn't come off across so copycat playing parakeet like maybe hellpoint did yeah exactly um <laughs> i would actually i am excited to see what they do with mortal shell in the future because it, it's it's gotten really good reviews uh really good reception from the community so i i think a sequel would be sort of inevitable and I think that's Have great. they announced like any like future plans with it in terms of series, sequel, DLC, anything? You know, if you don't know, that's fine. I don't think they have yet, but they have announced a physical release coming out in October because of how like good the reaction's right. been. People really wanted it, so they're like, "Yeah, we'll do a physical release." So okay. I, I think signs are good. Okay. And uh, so George did put up a review for Mortal Shell up on the website. I don't think it's. Oh yeah, it is on the most recent. It's uh, the third most recent review at the time of recording. So, go ahead and give that a read, and go ahead and take a look at it if you think it's jam. All right, uh, Adam. Hello. Just yeah, just go ahead. I'm, I'm just giving you the floor. Talk about what you want. Well, I the only game I played in the last week I briefly mentioned. Uh, in our last podcast was I finished bug fables and, you know, I kind of have the same sort of thoughts you did. I think where in terms of like, it is, we, we talked about how mortal shell is very clearly in the vein of dark souls. Like some people say you shouldn't make those comparisons, but when it's so like on its face, obvious that that's the inspiration and you're kind of doing it a disservice if you don't mention it, I think right. bug fables, very obviously classic paper Mario style, like, there, everything from the UI to the, to the tone to everything is very, is just all Paper Mario. Um, the, clearly, the development team wanted to make a, a game in that vein uh, because Nintendo wasn't doing it. So, in terms of in in the classic style, I mean, in terms of uh, the game itself, Bug Fables, the writing is probably just a notch less charming and less well written than Paper Mario. Um, but like in terms of things it does with its combat, considering you have like three characters that are participating instead of just like Mario and a uh, and Mario a sidekick and friend, yeah, right. Um, it actually gets a little bit more intricate in ways in terms of like because who whoever's in front does more damage, whoever's in back does less damage. You can swap around the characters at any time. Um, you can have characters sort of borrow each other's turns. Uh, there's a lot of different medals that you equip, which are basically like badges, but now you can equip them to three different characters rather than just one. And so like in terms of in terms of like combat mechanics and balance and things like that, it's actually a little bit more like involved than Paper Mario is. It's and almost it more of an really, RPG than the original Paper yeah, Mario games. It's it it does some interesting things and there are certainly boss fights and encounters in the game where it's like, you know, strategize and things like that in terms of countering them 
And it's just a really well-made game. It's surprising how much... Um, it's a fully-fledged game. It is an indie game, but it has, you know, a full seven-chapter story that takes, you know, a good, I don't know, 20, 30 hours um, to complete. Uh, the There's a lot of side-off side quests. Like, when I got to the end of the game, I sort of just looked up some guide stuff to see some of the what I had missed in the game, and I actually had missed some just, like, side quests that had, you know, a fair amount of, like, dialogue scenes and 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 whatnot. And even like there's even like one of the side quests has a whole new dungeon added to it. Uh, that's just basically as long as any other chapter dungeon. And so there's a fair, fair bit of like game there. And it's it's kind of neat to see that for, from this debut studio or debut project from this new studio in Panama, I believe. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, the one thing about the game that I think is kind of just poorly like they didn't need to do it this way was. And I think you mentioned this was there's a bank in the game where you don't where you deposit your berries and your berries are your coins in this analog. It's your money. And then there's like an in-game real-time timer that gives you interest back on that. And that that whole thing kind of just feels not necessary in a way. Um you can actually kind of cheese the game by just depositing you know a big chunk of berries and then just like leaving it on overnight and then all of a sudden money's no longer a factor right so it's no longer it just, even a resource in the game you just have infinite money yeah and so it's it does cheapen things a bit it's like i'm not sure why they decided to do that that was not borrowed from any paper mario game but um otherwise it's pretty solid i like it a lot i feel like in general this might be very specific a tangent but i feel like in general a lot of games have really poor economy where it ends up by the time you're 40, 50% of the way through the game, you're just, you can afford everything you want. It's very rare, I think, to see a game where I actually like go to a late game shopkeeper and say like, oh man, do I want the weapon or do I want the item or do I want the armor? I can't think of a specific example right now. So maybe that's bad on my end, but... Star Ocean. What do you mean? Santa. Oh, the first it's Santa been so long. It's been so long since Not, I played a Star Ocean game. Ours, is this stuff ludicrously can, expensive? I don't remember. That's usually where you get like the tri emblems and some other like really really expensive stuff. Where it's it's kind of the thing where it's you know it's your post game shop. So it's like as soon as you get first access to that shop, there's no way you can buy just everything. Your comment though actually reminds me of. Uh, um, the 3DS version of Radiant Historia. And this is where it was a little bit awkward. Sorry, this is a bit of a tangent where they really cut down on the amount of money you get in that version compared to the DS version. And depending on how you look at it, you could you could look at it in like the cynical sort of way. And it's, it's like, oh, it's because they want you to buy like the money DLC. But there's, the game also had like new... Um, like content that that occurred in between chapters where you could get items from like like a new dungeon area that was like ever evolving throughout the game and you got new currency there and you could get new items from that so they kind of just it in 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 brief they really kind of tweaked up the, the 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 economy in that game but that is definitely a game where you get to a new shop and you have it's a classic jrpg and you have you know seven party members and you cannot buy like each party member's new weapon without quite a bit of grinding it's it, you actually have to make the decisions like okay i only have so much money who needs the, who needs the weapon most sort of thing just your comment just reminded me of that 
I always feel like you should be at a little bit of a disadvantage. If you go to a shop and you can easily or fairly easily afford anything, and then that, then it ceases to kind of be like gameplay. It just kind of ends up being like a checklist. Or if you go to the shop... Yeah, and just kind of like, going through the motions. Yeah. If you go to a shop and you're like, oh, I actually have to like decide between these and weigh my options. Like that's inconvenient, yes. But I, I think you need a, a nugget of inconvenience to... In order for that to mean something like, oh, yeah, I got this weapon. I know that my opportunity cost is that I no longer have better armor, but I made that choice or, or whatever. I will I'd admit also like to point in out bug fables. After... Go ahead, George. Well, mine was a stupid joke, but I'm just glad that someone That's actually fine. did play, play, play bug fables. Like I keep joking that you should do. Well, yeah. um, and you haven't played it, though, so you're just. I haven't. I'm just. Uh... I, I just always like that joke. <laughs> well, this year in general has been a little bit quieter. Um, I, it, it seems weird to say that because we have had some really big games, like the biggest of which being Final Fantasy VII Remake. But I found myself enjoying indie projects a little bit more. I'm not exactly certain why that is, if it's more of just a personal mindset thing or if it's just this year. But my top 10 list, I tend to write one at the end of every year on the site. I probably have more indie games on there this year than I normally do. So just a little. I will admit out. in bug fables, I did exploit that. Just I'll just leave the game on and let my, you know, currency interest rack up. Cause why not? Right. And then yeah, like for some, of those, some of those like that. Go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you. Some of those final boss fights in the game. It's like, well, I can buy the best healing HP item and the best healing you know, TP items now, and I'll just basically stock up on these before the final boss. And it did kind of dilute the challenge there a bit. But I think what you're going to say is when there's like an exploit in the game, that's not really an exploit, but just sort of baked into the game design that you can use, you know, it's like, why not um, just take advantage of it when it's right there? Yeah. If the hurdle to exploiting the game is so low, I almost find myself just naturally inclined to do it. The two examples that I can think of are this money example in Bug Fables, but also in Dark Cloud uh, for the PS2. I knew you were say Dark Cloud. <laughs> there is a very weird glitch where if you like access menus in a certain order at the very first city, you get an item called the Broken Dagger, which you can like affix to your weapons to make them ludicrously powerful. And like give give you all the bonuses that normally you really have to grind up for, and it's just like okay, if you're telling me that all I have to do to get this is press some buttons in some order from the very first town on, I'm 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 gonna do it. I'm never gonna like I don't I don't get like aimbots or trainers or whatever. Like I don't I never look for like outside ways to inject into the game. But if it's right there in the game, I just find myself unable to like resist that. Another one is uh. I will admit that I fought the False King in Darks in uh, Demon Souls by shooting arrows through the fog gate. I have no shame. <laughs> Is that actually There's that, also the um, uh, in Dream Drop Distance? We've, I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast. But if you use uh, Balloon in Dream Drop Distance, it just makes the whole game ludicrously easy. It's just this one spell that is really cheap, really easy to get, and does incredible damage for whatever reason. Like it, it was never balanced in the PS4 release either. And if you just use that or Balloonra, you you're golden. You don't need any other skills. Wasn't Shotlock kind of some like a similar deal in Birth by Sleep? 
Yeah, it was. Yep. And uh, Attraction Flow in Kingdom Hearts 3. Man, those games are busted. And I love them. <laughs> One other exploit that came to mind is uh, in the original Final Fantasy VII, the item duplication glitch is really easy to pull off. It's like, oh, I have two elixirs. Oh, look, now I have 99 elixirs. Nice. And it, it's like so easy. It's, when the exploit is that easy, it's like, okay, I'll just do it. Yeah, and like what do I gain right by there. doing this legit and spending hours getting this when I can just press a few buttons and do it? I like how you were able to bring up Bug Fables, talk about the economy exploit, so we could talk about economies and games and exploits. So a little bit different than what we talked about when we first brought up that game uh, back in May. So, James, I know that over the last week you've still been uh, plunging your way through Final Fantasy XIV. So I yeah. assume you're at, like, endgame stuff, like yeah, endgame, endgame, but I'm not really certain. So just describe well, what you've been doing. Well, I'm not at endgame, endgame. That would be uh, doing the second raid tier for Savage uh, Eden raid content, which I haven't even cleared. Uh, well, not because I probably can't, but I've been trying to clear through the first regular normal raid tier for Eden, which is the current um, raid series, but the uh, um, the Duty Finder queues have been kind of dead since people have... It, it's not in the um, normal raid roulette yet, so you basically have to hope that people are um, like um, putting themselves down for it. I might have to just make a party finder group for it eventually. I'm sure since it's only like the normal versions, not Savage, it would be a bit easier. Who knows? Um, what I've been playing this week, I've actually been exploring not just some um, endgame content for uh, 14, but also some kind of interesting side content that I don't feel like that many people in the community probably um, do too much with. So... Generally in Final Fantasy XIV, there's very little reason for you to do content that's out on the world map, like in actual areas. Most of the content that people do at Endgame is very much instanced, so it's either raids or it's trials. There, the one exception would be there's this um, system called Elite Marks or Hunts, and each expansion kind of has a variety of monsters that are like especially strong that spawn on like each of the maps and they have like spawn timers like after their kill that drop a currency that you can exchange for um, a variety of things including like materia mounts minions the like and there's also like several achievements that also have their own mounts uh, attributed to them and stuff like that so this week i've been checking out um hunts like there's a discord out there called centurio hunts that's basically people set keep an eye on when the specific monsters that they want to go for spawn and then like multiple times a day they'll have things called hunt trains where basically you have like god something close to a hundred different people maybe more sometimes getting together in one area grabbing all the hunts for an area, moving on to the next area, and just basically wiping the um, slate clean, um, clean. And what happens is, is that if you're in a party, it makes it more efficient because as long as your party overall has done enough to contribute to the hunts, 
even if you die, you'll still get up um, like the max um, amount of uh, currency you can get from killing those marks and whatnot. That makes so that's sense. yeah, it's um, interesting. I wouldn't say it's actually that hard, except for like certain like S rank hunts, which are the highest rank, and they have a respawn timer that's at least a day and a half long, maybe a little bit longer sometimes. And then there's also some, these aren't really hunts, but there's these, um, so if I remember how I was talking about doing fates for the Yokai Watch event last week, right? Yeah. So there's also these sorts of uh, boss fates that can spawn in certain areas after certain requirements have been met, and it's been long enough since the fate last spawned. And these are like huge, really difficult bosses that, especially at um, endgame like uh, Shadowbringers, you need like at least, I'd say, 30 people in 15 minutes in order to kill some of them. Because of that's how much HP they have, and they do tons of damage. It's but these are on the um, they're not instants; they're like on the the world maps. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're still slight. They might be difficult, but they're still a slightly more casual in terms of not having to form a deliberate group to go yeah. into a dungeon yeah. and do them. But uh, I've been having fun doing that sort of stuff. And then last night, I finally had the chance to uh, um, check out treasure maps in uh, fourteen which is um, not really hardcore content, I'd say. So basically the way it works is, is that while you're gathering at gathering nodes on any of the maps, there's a chance for you to find a hidden item which will allow you to grab a treasure chest from the gathering node if you have a high enough um, gathering level in order to make sure you actually grab it. <clears throat> well... The mechanic with those is, is that you can only ever have one map active at a time, but once you've activated it, you can take a look and it'll show you like a zoomed in preview of where the map is and um, what region you want to search for it. So you actually have to open up the full map for the area that it's in and kind of search for the portion of the map that matches what you got on the treasure map. And then some of them you can solo the uh, um, treasure maps because, like, once you call forth the um, treasure coffer, it's going to spawn a bunch of enemies. Um, one of the thing, but one of the things I had fun with last night was that certain treasure maps have a pretty high chance of spawning a portal, which will lead to an instanced treasure dungeon which isn't like regular dungeons in the games. The way it works is that you basically stand in a single room, you fight basically waves of enemies, and there's like chances for special enemies to spawn that drop like additional treasure and whatnot. But you open the treasure chest there, and then there's two doors. You can choose one of the two, and you'll either be able to go on to the next level or you're kicked out. And I haven't gotten this far, in any of the uh, treasure ju um, treasure dungeons I've gotten to. So, um, but there are up to five levels, and the final level gives you, like, 100,000 gil, some really interesting stuff. I think you can drop minions, maybe mounts, I'm not sure, but um, that's fun. I found a group on Party Finder, and we basically knocked out, like, I'd say 15-ish treasure maps. That was a lot of fun. Um, but the main thing I've been doing this week is I've been checking out the latest Extreme Trial. I've been uh, progressing on it. Uh, 
so far the furthest I've gotten is past the ad phase, so about halfway through. So still working on that, but considering it is the current endgame stream, it's not really a huge rush. As long as I get it done before like 5.4, I'm not even sure if they're gonna add another extreme trial on 5.4, but as long as I get it done, it's like, well, doesn't matter if it takes me a while, as long as I'm actually uh, getting further the more I try it. <laughs> so that's like, Yeah, this might sound like a little bit of a platitude coming from someone who hasn't played much of 14, but I do think it's smart and good that they have kind of like these different levels of hardcoreness. You can't just have story and then and then raids. Like I think it's I think it's good to have like, all right, we have these world map bosses that are slightly more challenging, but a bit more casual. We've got de- treasure dungeons which are casual in nature as well, but they can be challenging in certain ways. And then of course at the extreme end, you've got the your extreme raids and your uh, extreme trials. It's just that I, I think it's good to have especially if you want to have a healthy population, not everyone is going to be raiders. So it's cool to have different, you know, avenues of gameplay kind of at the different skill levels. And I think that's a hard thing to balance. You've seen games yeah. like, uh, like Wildstar, which this is a bit hearsay. Cause again, I haven't played that went really heavy into like the, we are a hardcore game. We do raids, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore they kind of like pinch their population small from the get go. And then there are other games uh, that are arguably too casual and they don't have enough for people who really want to sink time into it to really like prove that they can meet the skill ceiling. They don't they might not have frequent enough, you know, hardcore updates for those that really get dedicated. So it's good to have that balance. And from an outsider's perspective, and especially considering how successful it's been, it seems like Final Fantasy fourteen is doing a lot of things right. Yeah. I would talk about some of the mechanics for the current extreme, which is Seed of Sacrifice. But um, since it is still relatively new, it's like less than a month old, I don't really want to talk about mechanics if people are still trying to go in blind. Because like every now and then, I still see people in Party Finder saying, hey, we're going in blind. And at least for now, even if it's getting rarer and rarer, people are still obliging them. So I... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of mechanics, though. It's pretty nice. Like... uh, I think the, so my experience with MMO rating, like, has basically just been Destiny raids, which are generally very mechanics heavy. And uh, when I was a kid, there, I did, like, Toontown Online, which also had, like, mechanics heavy raids. Well, not, I wouldn't say heavy, but definitely had mechanics, which was Okay, I was not expecting a raid discussion to then segue into Toontown Online. Toontown Online was awesome. <laughs> Yeah. George, did you ever get to the uh, raids in Toontown? Honestly, I think the only thing I did in that game was run around all of the enemies and go like, go to all the little worlds and just stare at the Disney characters that were there. Ah. Like, I, was, I was really young. I, I wish I could contribute more actual like RPG discussion to Toontown yeah. Online. I would like, just run around the world. I can't see this, but I'm like grinning like an idiot because you're like, I'm like, what? Toontown rates? Like, <laughs> no, it's like absurd. No, like, you'd be actually surprised. Like, there was like four raids, and then I guess like near the very end, they had these sort of dungeons that were like mini raids. But in Toontown, there was like four, there was like four different types of enemies for the cogs, which are the robot enemies, and you had like the factions of those. And there was like four different raids for them. Like 
the Cellbot raid, you basically had, um, which was the easiest one and the least mechanics heavy, you had this, you had these bunch of pies, and you basically had to, when you threw them, you had to charge them up to kind of angle them right. And every so often, like, the boss had this undercarriage you'd open up to shoot, like, gears at people. And in order to deal damage to him, because they're not really dealing damage to him specifically, you need to stun him by getting a throw pie into that small undercarriage opening. So he's stunned so people can throw pies at his, like, face to push him back. And then eventually, and then eventually, he would fall off this tower, and that would be the end of the raid. But it's like, for a kids like MMO, that was actually pretty intense. And then like yeah. there was other ones where um, you had um, you're in this small room, and there's a bunch of these mini enemies with like these uh, kind of like floodlight um, floodlight lenses. If they hit you, you do you get a lot of damage done. I'm and still like an idiot, just flirting. There's like four like cranes with magnets on them and what you want to do is you want to stun some of these smaller enemies so people that were on the cranes can pick them up and fling them at the boss to deal damage and then if he gets like a helmet on him you need to grab one of these safes in the room to knock it off in order to continue doing damage so it's like you have two specific groups like people that are, are going for stunning the enemies not just to make it so that people can pick them up and deal damage, but also because stunning them drops like healing items so people can heal themselves. And then you have people that are actually trying to, because the crane mini game there was surprisingly like difficult, like it actually has physics and whatnot. So you have to angle it right. It's like, and then the um, Lawbot one, oh, that one was really, really interesting. So you were literally stacking the jury against this boss. So you're, you have to, like, navigate to grab these um, things that you throw at. I actually forget the exact mechanics of it, but I know it was, like, super, super, like, weird. And I the was boss not boss expecting boss. such yeah, a detailed like, discussion on Toontown Online today. This was not on the podcast she, document. Yeah. In all fairness, now James has been talking about it, I do remember... I, I believe you had to pay to do them, but I do remember that there were these big banks. I don't know if this this is what you mean, but there were these big banks that you would go in and they would act as sort of like the main gameplay stuff. I don't think I ever did any of that stuff, but I remember so looking into it. The way it worked is, is if you weren't, like, Toontown was never free to play except at the very, very end. But um, in order to do the regular dungeons in the game, you had to be a subscriber even if you're on the free trial. So yeah. Uh, okay. That's why. But uh, just around that way of saying that my experience with uh, raiding in MMOs has obviously been lim limited, but um, it's been nice. I've always liked the end game uh, loop of like actually trying to learn mechanics. Like it's even one thing, like you couldn't understand what to do, but putting into practice is always fun. Does Guild Wars have raids? <laughs> It does, um, and well, I'll actually talk about Guild Wars a little bit later in the new in the uh, news section, because um, I have a lot of thoughts on it, obviously. But what I've actually been playing most of uh, for the last seven days is a little game called Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered Edition. I almost said Seven Remastered, uh, Crystal Chronicles <laughs> uh, Remastered. Uh, so. You've probably, if you're listening to this, you've probably already got 
some gleaning about what this remaster is like and a lot of ways it falls short i'm not going to pretend you haven't read about well maybe i should to some extent um so final fantasy uh, crystal chronicles remastered is a re-release of a gamecube game from 2003 that was primarily multiplayer focused however back in 2003 uh the gamecube did not have much online capability if any i don't know if it had like one like weird oddball but uh you originally had to have the Game Boy connected to the console through a link cable. So long story short, without getting too in the weeds, it was very rare, at least in my childhood, to ever get a full four-player session going. And if you did, it was maybe a few times. So I actually wrote a review for this game, and we put up a video on YouTube on our casual mode series about this. Um, this game, when I was, I was really looking forward to this game. And it's part of the reason why I kind of, quote unquote, signed up to review it, because in a lot of ways, this was sort of like calling it a white whale is a little bit too much. Uh, it's a little that's a little bit too bold, but it was sort of like one of those things where as a child, I never finished it. So I was like, oh, here's my chance. Like, I'll actually be able to grab a few friends and play through this game that I never got to see the credits for before until you learned how exactly it works. Um, so the. Remastered edition of this game does not have local co-op. It only has online co-op, which is disappointing on itself, but not a deal breaker as long as the online co-op could successfully emulate the local experience. The long story short is that it just doesn't. So, and this is difficult because Crystal Chronicles is a strange game. It just is, even, even when it originally released, uh, because you create a party called a caravan of multiple characters. And originally, you and your friends would basically play as individual members of this party. So you'd have like your different races, you'd have your spellcaster or your sword wielder. Um, you'd have your different like professions, like one person would be the merchant, one person would be the alchemist. So it was a really fun time. It wasn't always like the most clever put together game, but it was just interesting and different. And in a lot of ways, it still is interesting and different, but they took, they didn't take the opportunity to kind of like reach the potential that I thought it had because in the online version of the game, you're only limited to doing the dungeons with player controlled, you know, allies with friends, which is like so far missing the point that it's almost comical it's i don't want to like just sit here and bash it but it just feels like man what a missed opportunity because what that means is that you cannot experience the story as friends you cannot go through the game together without like jumping into or out of dungeon lobbies man like i don't even just know where to start what would okay are there any what what would you say are the positives We'll start positive, work our way down. Thank you, George. Um, if 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 any positives, no, there are some. There are. I, well, there's there's two kind of levels to it. It has some great music. It has some really good art. I really feel like it's cool that Final Fantasy can have sub series that are a little bit more cozy, a little bit more you know kid friendly. So and so, like it's not got to be all you know gear punk or you know. That's like a lot of Final Fantasy games, especially recently, have been like really doing this like futuresque. Like they've been drifting away from fantasy and more towards, um, I don't know, like mag uh, magitech. What's what's like a good word for that? 
kind of like this. Uh, to be honest, the word that comes to mind for me, not not necessarily the the genre, but the tone, is that a lot of Final Fantasy games recently are like really dramatic. Like they're supposed to be like really sweeping big event things where yeah, Crystal Chronicles was just kind of more like a relaxed, laid back sort of game. Yeah, it's, it's not so dramatic. What we used in our little tagline for it was cozy, which is a good word for it. Um, I love the different races that they've introduced. It doesn't borrow from like other series where it has like Viera or Benga or whatever. It has, you know, races that are cool and clever and unique to this subseries, like the Ukes, which are like spellcasters, souls and armor type things, or Selkies, which are like these kind of diminutive, diminutive, I can't say that word, short, uh, short kind of like dwarf or gnome-like creatures, but they're supposed to be like really powerful and like really well-respected and excellent soldiers. There's Selkies, which are kind of like Islander thieves, nomadic people. It's got these like really cool ideas that are unique to this subseries that it's cool just to see them like kind of branch out in this way. And that's kind of more of the lore like how it differentiates itself and then all the i haven't played many of the crystal chronicles games like the the ds versions or the wii uh, game but most of them lean to this like multiplayer aspect which maybe is less you know less unique nowadays since more and more games are introducing multiplayer components it just felt like so those are the pretty much the good things it's got a good setting it's got some really cool ideas it's got some fabulous um music it's just a cozy little, it's got some cozy uh, kind of aesthetic to it. The problem is, is that if you say like, man, okay, what you've described sounds really cool. Uh, I want to play that. Well, what that means is that if I create a file and Adam creates a file and we want to play together, I would then basically play single player up until the point where I'm at the first dungeon, where I would then host a lobby and say like, come on, uh, come join me, Adam. And he would, and we'd play the, the multiplayer dungeon together. And this is like a top-down, very basic action RPG. It's kind of one of those games that is kind of mediocre in terms of like its pure essence as an action RPG, carried by the fact that it is such a collaborative experience, at least on paper. But then, as soon as we clear the dungeon, since he was assisting me, I would get credit and I would progress my story, and then he would basically be reverted back to where he was beforehand. He's effectively, uh, to talk about souls again in a very weird sense, he's, a, he's effectively a souls phantom helping me out. He's a sun bro in my Crystal Chronicles caravan party. And there's some cases where that would work out okay if we wanted to just do a dungeon over and over again to get materials, to fight the boss, to to uh, progress our characters in terms of our strength, that works out okay. But that just misses the essence of the original game where you can't really say, like, let's form a party and experience a story together. It's just not possible anymore, which is just a huge bummer. I think Crystal Chronicles, the original, in general... The original game felt like it was designed that you were supposed to go through pretty much the entire game in lockstep with your friends, like from start to finish. And even if you couldn't, like that character that you would control or one of your friends would control is still a part of the caravan. And like, to be honest, anyone could control them because they're part of the caravan that you created on your singular GameCube memory card. But like, 
now being an online game in 2020, it just doesn't work like that anymore. If like I'm playing with you, my character is not part of your caravan. He's part of my caravan. And you cannot basically play the game in lockstep anymore together. It's just like these dungeon instances. And that just kind of betrays the, I think the design of the game or the, you know, the overall structure of it. It's just very, very weirdly done. And it's so, like you said, it's pretty much just a single player game now. Like you, you it, it, the reason why it's a single player game now, why we call it, why we say it like that is that's the only way you can actually progress through the game is either in single player or if you happen to be the host. So it's just, it's a bummer. Some people might argue, and I would say they're probably right, is that Crystal Chronicles was never an amazing game or even a good game. It was kind of like this kind of interesting game with interesting systems that could end up like batting above its weight punching above its weight I'm mixing my metaphors um b- because you could play with friends all the way through if you manage to clear the hurdle of getting friends together and having all the equipment necessary but as an as a single player game it was always just kind of average or maybe even less than average depending on your you know preference but the idea of saying like okay we are going to re-release this 15 plus years later with where we can have a modern online infrastructure and now we don't have those limitations, it felt like this could really be like the game as it was originally meant to be. Like it could have finally kind of reached its potential. That sounds a little bit like hokey, but I think it's true in some sense. But instead they went the opposite direction. They're like, okay, we're gonna make this even more limiting. So it's even more transparently an average game now. And it's just like, man, what a, what, what a shit show. Just. I think they sh- they could. This feels like really like lame and silly to just say what they should have done, especially when it would have required uh, more effort significantly. But I feel like a newer game in this series designed around the fact that you can anticipate that people will have PlayStation Plus or Nintendo Switch Online or or even on Steam like c- capability, a game designed around online multiplayer where you remove these limitations of caravans where you say like where you tr- they're basically they're trying to pretend that this game wasn't originally intended to be local multiplayer with your friends in the same room on the same TV and it just it just doesn't work it feels like they're trying to fit a square peg into a round hole there i finally got a metaphor <laughs> stated <laughs> properly start to finish it's just it's just super messy and the original game was already messy and they they've kind of somehow made it worse i still think there are things you can enjoy about this. It does some really neat, like little things where I guess I never really talked about the premise. And I don't, this doesn't, this won't take much time at all. Basically, the idea is, is that the world is covered in this damaging fog known as miasma. And these parties, these caravans we brought up are going out into dungeons in the world to collect basically mana to, it's called myrrh in this game, to basically keep the miasma at bay for a time. And some of these dungeons really do interesting things and interesting interplay like for instance if you go to one dungeon where a bunch of lizard men live and you blow up a bridge outside of their fortress and then later you go to some ruins down river you'll find that the bridge has made a new path for you to cross on or you go to a city and you find this selkie researcher who's trying to learn about the secrets of miasma and you you say like you wish him well and then they start writing you letters and they become kind of like your pen pal and then once they stop writing you letters 
you can end up finding like their worn bandana held by a monster in one of the dungeons, suggesting that they met like a bad fate. And there was a couple other side quests like that too. I like some of those, like none of those things individually are super like that, you know, extremely cool on their own, but it's just like neat ways you can tell like these little tiny anecdotal stories within these discrete like dungeon areas. And they all have their own cool themes and they all have their own cool like music and their own cool enemy types. I just think a modern and without game it being not... go ahead and without and without those little little like storyline or like even game mechanic quest mechanics there they're not like bespoke written like do this written quest that's in your quest log it's just like it's more natural than that in a way I just feel like I, if 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 Crystal Chronicles was made for the first time in 2020 like this wasn't a remaster this was a new project it could be amazing. And I know like everything in your mind's eye before it actually exists as a real thing is amazing, but it's just hard not to see the potential there. And then be it just, again, just going to the word bummed, you know, what a bummer that it's not even close to meeting that. So I'll probably put some more time into it just because like, I do have that nostalgia for the game and I'm just kind of gritting my teeth through all the things that are frustrating about it, but it is, it is a hard sell. It's a hard recommend. Um, I guess do I suppose. Go ahead, George. Is there any of it could be fixed? Like, do you think there's any? Uh, I know, like, it's like the systems are broken, but do you think we could see like a big? Hey, we're doing a big update that could fix some of this stuff. Do you think that's possible, or is this there's, sort of there's, just there's two? There's two. Ma- it would require some major tweaks that I think are unlikely. But if I could have, like, if I could, like, wish on a magic genie or whatever, I would say allow my online friends to play as people in my caravan. Basically just assign a character. If I create a person in my caravan, that's a Selkie blacksmith. And then I say like, George, come join my game and play as this blacksmith. That's your character. And then you could decide what they look like or whatever, or what, what weapons they use. That would help because then, then when our caravan gets progression, we would both get it. And that would basically be more faithful to how the original game worked. In the absence of being able to do that, if they made it so that the people in my caravan progressed in terms of getting artifacts to, at the same time, and artifacts is how you basically, quote unquote, level up in this game. You get artifacts for beating dungeons and beating bosses, and they increase your strength and increase your defense or whatever. If my artifacts were shared amongst my caravan, it wouldn't feel like such a uh, handicap to always have to play as one character because they, they're the only ones that are getting stronger. Right. And then, like, at the, the the last wish, the pie in the sky would be just offer up some local co-op, I guess. <laughs> that, that, would, like, that would do it. Just make it more like the original game, only not require uh, Game Boy Advance Link cables. It's always so been, like, anything. the big problem, though, isn't it? Like, even, even when that was announced, I believe we talked about it on the podcast at the time, but it's nuts that it didn't have local at all. The thing is, is just it could have still worked. Like local co-op was a bummer. No local co-op, I mean, but it could have still worked. Like I think, I think they could have designed around that, but they just didn't. And I don't know if that's a technical limitation. I don't know if that's a we were too constrained. We couldn't implement it, or we didn't have the resources. I don't know the reason, but regardless, the result where they ended up is just a shame. So, anyways, uh, we have a review on that game and a, and a YouTube video. So. Um, there's still some nuggets about things that it does well, just with a, a long list of caveats. 
that's basically the uh the summary and i guess that covers it for uh what we've been playing this week so we've already matched the length of the last podcast without even talking <laughs> about uh topics of the week so let's just uh, roll right on into them so uh the main topic I guess it's not really a main one because it depends on your inclination, I suppose. But the first topic listed on the podcast document uh, is we finally got a confirmed release date for Yakuza Like a Dragon. It will be coming out on November 13th for PlayStation 4 and then the Xbox One with the smart you know, system to upgrade to Xbox Series X whenever that releases. And PC with the one... Uh, a mission being that it seemingly doesn't have a PlayStation 5 specific release until later. Uh, and this is the same date that was kind of suggested based on the Microsoft Store listing from a few weeks back. But now it's confirmed and announced. And uh, we've already learned that this game will have dual audio, kind of like Judgment did in terms of English voiceover and Japanese voiceover. Um, I'm pretty excited for this, even though I'm not really up to caught up on my uh, Yakuza games. I've only played through Kiwami 2. But I'm hoping that it's... Uh... I know some big series fans say that this game still requires a lot of previous knowledge of the whole series, like up through 6. But I think I'm planning on going into this one just knowing ahead of time that I will have knowledge gaps. Yeah, I think I'm going to do the same. The only Yakuza game I've properly played was Song of Life. That was six, right? Wait, so you started with six? <laughs> well, I played the demo of six. Uh, I had briefly played zero, and I didn't really gel the combat, which is weird because like Yakuza is a sort of game that like it, I know we have. Uh, difficulty defining a George game, but that is always one that people say, "Oh, like Yakuza, you, you'd love that." And it, none of them really did much for me until six. I really liked the physics-based combat for some reason; like it just it felt really heavy, uh, and that got me through. And I loved it. I loved the story. I loved the characters. Uh, I cried a bit, and that was just from like one game that is sort of the culmination of all of them. So. I think I have faith that if I just jump into this one, I'll probably enjoy it as well. I do think that in general, I can't speak specifically to Yakuza 6 because I haven't played it, but I do think in general, when people are super invested in a long-running, continuous narrative series like this, that when you have that background information, whether you've played all the Yakuza games up through 6, or you've played all of the um, Kaseki games up through the latest Cold Steel release, I think sometimes it's easy to overvalue how much your prior knowledge uh, is essential to your enjoyment. And that's not always true. There are some cases where you definitely need it. Like an example, I think, would be something like Xenosaga 2. You're not going to enjoy it all if you haven't played Xenosaga 1. But I'm hoping that Yakuza 7 is more like where it's an okay starting point maybe not the most ideal but it's just understand that our time is limited and we can't all put aside time to play through seven games before we get here it's just that there's there's a return on investment that might not match the required time allowed and then obviously i have to i should bring up even though most people who are know about this game are aware of this but that um this does 
swap out like the the action brawler style with a more traditional turn-based game kind of in the vein of uh, dragon quest and it's interesting to see a series do that because so many other series are going the opposite direction where they're kind of slowly phasing out these menu driven uh systems for more real-time action so i think it's kind of cool and bold that they did that and supposedly that's just because they they wanted to try something different like they're just like you know what we've made a lot of games in the same vein with incremental changes so we're going to shift it up and try something completely off the wall. So I know it's cool. because it's because Ichiban is a big fan of Dragon Quest. Oh, and right. So like when uh, he's fighting <laughs> like his foes, he like imagines the world as like an RPG, like an old classic RPG. <laughs> That's why. Oh, OK, I'm sorry for, for stating that incorrectly, but I'm still excited for it. Um, this might be uh it's I don't know. It's kind of weird to see how much it feels like Microsoft has been putting a lot of marketing emphasis behind this game i'm not 100 sure why that is and i'm not sure it's a good fit but it's i'm just kind of noting it it's kind of interesting i've seen a lot of yakuza gifs from like their various social accounts and things like that that's like their biggest game off the top of my head now that halo's been delayed that's like the the big banker for the xbox series x yeah and again in typical microsoft fashion it's not really an exclusive it's just kind of this weird like partnership that no. we we could speculate on exactly how it came to be or exactly what it even entails. It's just it's just kind of weird. Yep, yeah, November thirteenth for Yakuza Seven, known in the West as Yakuza Like a Dragon. Who knows what they're gonna call it once it goes to eight or beyond? <laughs> so we'll see. Here's a George game for certain. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a little game called uh, Kingdom Hearts. Melody of Memory well, launching on November 11th and also on November November 11th in Japan and also on November 13th in North America. So we got a new trailer for this. And what do we think about it? The thing is, the, it's, it's quite difficult to say this, but I don't know. I don't know if there's anything for me to say about Melody of Memory besides like I'm obviously 100% on board. I'm obviously really excited. I watched the trailer and th- I didn't really glean anything from it besides, oh wow, they've really like gone heavy into this. Like this isn't just some sort of half-assed, oh yeah, just chuck out some rhythm game stuff. Like this looks really fully fledged um, and really involved, which which is awesome. I've always wanted like a, a rhythm-based Kingdom Hearts game. Uh, I will say this as sort of the only disappointment for me is that it's not a simultaneous a simultaneous worldwide release and that that sounds really stupid because it is only two days but as someone who was sort of like around when kingdom hearts well we've all been around when kingdom hearts 3 came out but i i saw how the spoilers sort of get out really really fast and that's going to happen again I, I i can just tell now that i'm going to have to be off social media for like a couple of days before release uh I get why, like logistically, it's not easy to release a game worldwide, but it it was just sort of like really like two days, like it seems small, but that is just going to kind of mess things up a little bit. I wonder how much like new overarching storyline stuff there's going to be. I wonder if it's going to be something like um, uh, coded, where coded had like one scene at like the end of the game that was 
relevant at all to anything. And the rest was just, you know, this dungeon crawler gameplay sort of thing. So I wonder if this game is going to be like 99% like this musical rhythm game. And then at the very end, there'll be just some uh, cutscene in the Kingdom Hearts 3 engine that teases the next thing. You know, uh, so uh, yeah, I, I think that's the way it's going to go. Uh, it se- it seems cool. like what it is. It seems like I guess they they probably said this specifically, but um, they have Kyrie. The game is like it's kind of weird how this seems to be like the Kyrie focused game. Like she's actually on the key art and everything. And her 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 first game, her focus is a rhythm game, I guess. Um, like she she goes to like uh the lab area, and they're gonna like search through her memories to. Uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 spoiler coming up. Skip a few seconds if you haven't played uh, to try to find where Sora is. So it's like this rhythm game is going to be, I guess, some manifestation of memories, hence the title. And we'll somehow get some clue to finding out where Sora is. So well, this won't be the first game in the series where you kind of have a whole game almost be like this diversionary thing. And then it has a very key moment said. at the end. So oh, I'm just sorry. said. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I, I said like coded was like that where just sort of, you know, there was one scene at the end that was basically set up dream drop distance, I think. Um, and then, yeah. See, I, I saw um, I saw someone tweet, uh, saw, saw Alan one who's like one of the big, there's like a, in the Kingdom Hearts community, there's some big Kingdom Hearts YouTubers. You've probably heard of a few of them, but he's one of the ones that does like trailer analysis. Really, really like good analysis. Analysis? Whatever. Whatever the plural is. Analysis. Um, and he said, analysis is his. He was like, oh, in the trailer, I saw nothing that gave away spoilers. So that means there either aren't any spoilers or they're just not spoiling them yet. And that sounds well, like those, uh, are, those are the only two. Yeah, those are the only two things that are possible. <laughs> But, like, in previous Kingdom Hearts trailers, uh, especially the third game, the trailers were all so, like, spoiler-filled. Yeah, they didn't spoil, like, the big stuff, but you could still piece together some things. And here it just, like... My my worry is that it's going to be like Adam said, where it's, like, just the rhythm game stuff uh, interspliced with, like, tiny bits of detail. So, like, in the trailer, we see that uh, Kyrie was in those uh, time-traveling... <laughs> memory pods from kingdom hearts one that are then in dark road and uh unchained key uh and that's like a tease of like her origin uh and we see like bits of her running away from the heartless as well and and they've got this weird thing they keep focusing like this is going into really minute detail but like they keep focusing in on sora's face and then doing this weird trailer effect where they like invert the colors and then they were doing it on uh the uh oh what's his name master and masters um they keep like trying to infer there's some sort of connection between them and there's been this like long-running theory that the master and masters is like sora from another dimension or whatever and uh like maybe that's true maybe we'll find out who he is in this game that would kind of be cool uh i'm like i said the same in the staff chat yesterday about when they were showing off Ratchet and Clank at Gamescom, I am already completely sold on Melody of Memory. It could literally be like, I don't know, like 10 of the songs and I would still be completely sold. Uh, for me, a lot of the excitement comes from what might come out of the plot. Uh, and 
we really well, don't know. I think I think that's just smart. If they uh if this game had clearly been marketed where it had absolutely no plot relevance at all and it was just a pure mini game, mm. it would I, I think a lot of people would just be like, okay, I don't have to invest in it. I think now, that's why they didn't call it I think that's why they didn't call it like theater rhythm. Because then yeah. it would just be more clearly, oh, this is just for the music stuff. Um, all they have to do, all they have to do is just include one cutscene that is new and tease something. It doesn't even matter what it is. As long as it's mysterious and not explained, they just have to tease it. <laughs> and that they can probably, like, <laughs> they, could, they can, like, massively improve, increase the sales from fan base. Weirdly, this is actually the first podcast where... I've been able to talk about Melody of Memory. I think just by pure chance, I've missed every single time something new has come out on it. So, like, my brain is currently in overdrive, remembering everything I've ever wanted to say about it. Uh, it's kind of a shame that the Kyrie focused game isn't like a mainline title. Like, it is a mainline title, but like, I would like to see her carry her own game, uh, maybe with Riku as a side character. Uh, like they sort of did for Dream Drop Distance, and it, I feel it does like that's feel a little unfair. Did. Where it's like Kyrie gets the rhythm game, just like I don't know how I don't know how to explain it. It's like, well, of course she does. Like, well, like it, Sora is obviously the main character. Riku's been playable several times, and Dream Drop Distance is basically Riku's game, right? Um, so it's like Kyrie just has had like has been basically has spent two mainline games. Uh, captured one mainline game like sideline training quote and like one boss fight in a dlc and that's it <laughs> so it's just kind of like you know she's been underutilized in terms of like just being available and, and this does so, this well it's and this is going to be just like before it's out but it just feels yeah. like this is this is what they've ever since kingdom hearts 2 the later scene where she finally gets a keyblade unexplained at the time completely and they still have manifested somehow yeah, there's still no payoff on that really like you could say maybe the dlc remind is but that feels just like so like they like it could have gone that's so like the further. lowest bar like she has yeah. one boss fight like oh, <laughs> just kind of amusing also side note like i played that dlc on critical mode and if you do decide to play as Kyrie on critical mode in that boss fight, it's pretty much like you're deciding to play on hard mode because like here you have Sora who you like probably have powered up and had like the best weapons and equipment on. And then you have sort of like here's preset Kyrie and you can't change her at all. And you know, if you fight as her on critical mode, you're probably going to die. It's like <laughs> hard, hard, mode, hard mode, hard mode squared. I, I think th the way they revealed Melody of Memory uh, after it got leaked is they would like, oh, Kingdom Hearts 2020. And then in that trailer, they get they have like a quick shot of uh, like the upcoming slate of Kingdom Hearts games, and it was like, oh, Dark Road, Melody of Memory, and then there's two blanked out uh, pieces on that board. I think the next game is going to be air quotes Dream Drop Distance Two, but Kyrie and Riku after Melody of Memory reveals what they have to do to get him back. I think there's going to be no Disney focus there. I think it's just going to be purely all the Yazora. Uh, other world stuff. And I love then that we're I in think like another that... uh, stretch of time where the the window between Kingdom Hearts two and three, where we had all these quote unquote spinoffs. I know they're not really spinoffs, but all these weird like specifically focused games. And like, oh man, we're we're in another window of that, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> you have to hope like Kingdom Hearts four is happening. But I've been thinking this for a while, and I, I'm I'm not sure how I feel about it. But 
it would really not surprise me if Kingdom Hearts starts dropping Final Fantasy and Disney elements. I like I know that's that sounds really stupid, but I don't mean like Sora, uh, Donald, Goofy, Mickey, and the sort of the main cast. I think they're always going to be there. They always they they have to like. But I feel like in the next couple of games, we're really not going to see that as much. I, I don't know whether I'm just. I really bet. If I had to guess, and this is basically a very safe guess because this is pretty much what they did, but any game that doesn't have a numbered subtitle, they're not obligated to really do much of anything there except maybe a couple teases or maybe a couple cameos. But I I betcha if they do go with a four, they will do Disney World's. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I just think in the same vein that Final Fantasy had pretty much, well, Final Fantasy had no impact on free. I think they're leaning more and more into the people like me who are crazy about Kingdom Hearts for the Kingdom Hearts characters. Like, I love Disney, and I like Final Fantasy. Like, if they got rid of both of them, I still would buy Kingdom Hearts. I still would be pretty obsessed with it. So I feel like, maybe not Melody of Memory, because that's already been shown to have Disney worlds and Disney characters, but I feel like maybe the next game could get away with just being... Hearts focused and Azora focused. And the the wild card here is: Are they going to somehow tie like the world ends with you into this more strongly? Oh, that'd be cool. I'd be um, so happy with that. There's the new uh, anime series for World Ends with You. The the Switch version of that has pretty much a sequel tease. The Kingdom Hearts three spoiler. We should, we should probably just have open spoiler warning on Kingdom Hearts three here. But um, <laughs> the end of Kingdom Hearts three shows the shibuya i forget what that building is called the 106 um maybe yeah whatever it is that building letters on it numbers yeah um (laughs) so it's like huh and also i guess the one thing we also know is that 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 final video also shows like riku in some area place it doesn't it may not be the same place that sora's in but he's like also in some strange world it's like He's got to eventually get there somehow. Like he's su- yeah, it's suggested that he's made his way to Sora's general location, or he's he's somehow. I, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's the same place or just a similar place. You know, it, just, uh, they're supposed to be in the same area, but in the Remind DLC, it said that that's one of Riku's dreams. Like uh, that whole thing is Riku dreaming because that fairy godmother comes and says, "You've been having that dream about Sora and that place again, haven't you?" And that's All like right. the, one of the keys to finding it, as well as Kyrie. So, also interestingly, um, this is again might be something I've said, but two really interesting theories have come out regarding the ending of Remind. Uh, when Sora looks down at his hand in the secret ending for Kingdom Hearts Three, you kind of like make the link that he's looking for the World Ends of You Reapers game like number, like oh he's in Shibuya, like he's looking to see if he's got the number or whatever. But then the ending of Remind, uh, one of the endings, Yazora freezes him, and the first place that he starts freezing is by his hand, and he's like, and he notices that he's freezing by his hand. So then, like, people have gone back and said, oh, maybe he's like, this is after he's been frozen, he's woken up, and that's the canon ending. The thing is with Nomura, like, a lot of it seems like he's just making links, like, retroactively. It's like, oh yeah, sure, like that could work. I mean, Matt is not answer. I mean, thematically, it would make sense for Sora to end up in the Reapers game. So, I mean, 
Oh yeah, I'd love that. Like de- definitely, I think that'd be really cool and a really good way of linking them together. But I I just think uh, it's interesting that there there are people out there who make that sort of link. Like I didn't notice that. I've seen it and then I've gone, oh yeah. Then the other interesting theory, and this one is really really cool, uh, is that Sora's actually like a corpse and that he's died. I saw this thing that, on Twitter. Oh, where they're, like, man. there's. I feel like that theory comes up everywhere. Like, Isn't that just the same thing as the Reaper? Isn't that the same thing as the Reaper's game thing? Because like the whole Reaper's game is that you are basically a ghost. No, no, no. Like the, that purgatory. that is true as well. Yeah. But basically, people have gone into the model viewer for the files of Remind or whatever, and in when you face your Zora, you're in like basically the real world. Air quotes again. And they've looked at Sora's model, like without any lighting effects, and he's got like blue blue marks under his fingernails. He's got like really dead colored skin. Like his lips look really blue. And people have gone like he looks like he's like dead. Like he looks like a walking corpse. And people have gone oh maybe like uh, the, the the power that he used in Kingdom Hearts three is like actually killed him, and he is like a corpse walking around. And like you can link them together to say he's in the Reaper's game, or maybe he's just dead. But like. I, I th- this is the sort of Kingdom Hearts stuff I live for. I just love all these little theories that come out, and then each game comes out like some of it gets confirmed or deconfirmed. Like Melody of Memory is probably going to tell us where the series goes I next. Remember, like how long ago was it? Fifteen years or more ago? Like that first teaser with BHK. Remember BHK? Yeah, that was the first. I don't know if George is old enough. For, yeah, George is a baby in this. <laughs> BHK was. George, you if I say blonde-haired kid, what do I? What is? What do you think? Oh of? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it was the first time they showed Roxas, and we didn't know anything about him, so his nickname was BHK. For me, like, that's who like, the heck is he? That's right. retroactive knowledge as well, where I'm like, I know what that is from people mentioning it, but I actually didn't get into the series. This is my big Kingdom Hearts shame. Uh, I actually missed the first one and played the second one first, and then jumped back into the first one when I was young. Like, I haven't been around from the start, but two got me into everything, and then obviously here I and am. Now you're speculating that uh, Sora is a corpse based on models yes. scrubbing. <laughs> Don't I love the series? I'm so glad you're on this podcast to talk about this because otherwise we would have moved on by Adam. It's like, yeah, it's a thing. So thank you for being here. But just, there are, I will mention on the other side of the topic here, there are 140 songs in this game. So that's a lot. Well, the series more deserves than 140. It, I think. That is 140 songs that are in one of the clips. I'm not going to do this every time. I, I promise. As soon as someone makes a point, I'm not going to say, "Okay, here's five minutes dedicated to that one point." But they show like the jukebox in this trailer, and it's like it split the song. Like it shows how many songs each game has, and the first game has 30 songs. I imagine it's about that for each one. Sounds pretty good. Well, that makes sense because later games just tend to borrow from the earlier games, so they might have slightly fewer individual new compositions. I can't believe I haven't mentioned. I guess they uh, they released also. I don't know where this is. It's probably on the official website, but they showed off the uh, Melody of Memory rendition of Dearly Beloved, which if you don't really good, it's really good. It's jazzy as heck. Like it's very different. yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I, I love jazz band, brass band sort of stuff, and it's basically that. So it's good. 
It's it's totally a lie though, because it's like, oh, this game's gonna be really happy and upbeat, and it's like, no, Sora's a corpse probably. I'm banking on so, that. That's come December, I will prove you guys right. If, yeah, <laughs> if uh, if that ends up being like anywhere close to true, I don't know. I don't want to. <laughs> can, I, can I? Can I? Can I regret this shortly and mention one more Kingdom Hearts lore thing? Oh, they recently yes. have been. <laughs> bringing up like a new character who has not been named or shown yet who is somehow related to like axel and leah or axel leah and uh, uh yes. east isa syx you know they're double named guys like there's some girl that they knew who was also like a test subject or something and it's just like they brought this character up in too many ways for her just to be a passing mention so it's like huh she the Again, I I promised I wouldn't just like straight away dive on and be like, "Hey, I I know all," because I don't. I'm 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 mostly just regurgitating what I read. But a lot of people think that's one of the characters from uh, right. Unchained Key, which like when it happened in Kingdom Hearts Three, it was so like out of left field. It was like, "Hey, hey, Isa, like we're friends, right?" And it's like, "Yeah, that's established from Birth by Sleep and pretty much all the games they've been in but it's like but we really care about this third character that's not been introduced yet like you remember her because the audience sure doesn't and it's I like i think i remember brian actually texting me like do we know this person like did i forget <laughs> like no she was never brought up before <laughs> like, oh, okay. like, apparently, i can't wait birth- for the uh the podcast after this uh the, the one that the after yakuza and kingdom hearts release Oh yeah. So can we move on, or is George have any more uh, nuggets? I'm struggling. I've hit. I've hit my well. Uh, I think we have to wait till it comes out now. All right, so, th- <laughs> so we will have an open Kingdom Hearts spoiler on on this podcast because I don't know how we avoid it. All right. So the other thing that is Square Enix related, actually, as a my tangential uh, point is that we got an announcement for Collection of Saga Final Fantasy Legend releasing for Nintendo Switch on December 15th. So I can explain this at a very basic level, is that in the early 90s, Saga games released for the original Game Boy, but when they released in the West, they took the title Final Fantasy Legend. So this re-release of those games has kind of paid homage is that the right word like it's it's basically got that's why it has both in their title collection of saga final fantasy legend adam i don't know if you've played these uh or if they were on your list to play yeah okay Uh, is it a trio of games all for the original game boy yeah they released 1989 1990 1991 so these are 30 year old games um this is kind of a weird like collection unlike uh, the Mana games, the original Mana games, which are Final Fantasy Adventure, uh, Secret of Mana, and Trials of Mana, I feel like any RPG person, if you like RPGs and aren't like allergic to classic RPGs, you could jump into those like and just kind of, as long as you have like the mindset of like, okay, these games are older, you could play them. But the Saga original games are, are a little bit harder to recommend because they are so weird and different and strange. That like, I don't even know if I like these games. They're just so weird that it's just kind of kind of interestingly weird. Um, it's just like you kind of have to if you wanted to play these games for the first time now and you haven't played them before and you're not just getting this as like a nostalgia thing. You kind of have to go into them just kind of understanding that like okay, 
these games are going to be weird. They're going to be annoying in places. They are going to be obtuse. And that's just how they are. And that's just how they were. And you just kind of have to accept that. <laughs> Can you give like an example? Yeah, weird how? Um, so like, especially in Saga 2, but also 3, there are systems in place where like you can have a monster character eat food and there's different food items in the game. And depending on which food they eat, they'll transform into different monsters. And sometimes the new monsters they transform into are not as good as the old ones. Um, and it's kind of like no rhyme or reason to things in terms of how they work. Um, there's also like uh, the the storyline stuff is kind of in the background and sort of up to is like, where do I actually have to go here? Um, for whenever I think of these games, I think of a, a tweet made by Jeremy Parrish from uh, Retronauts where he was playing Final Fantasy Legend 3 for the first time. He was like, How, my my fighting lady turned into a Zoidberg for some reason uh, <laughs> because the, she ate some meat or something. And it's just like... Um, how like the mechanics behind the game are just not intuitive and it's just it's the sort of the game you kind of just have to like like a lot of saga games in a way you just kind of have to try things and maybe they won't work and you kind of just have to butt your head against it a bit and eventually you'll come out okay but it's not going to be like this smooth easy thing and it's it's even more obtuse than like saga scarlet grace you know came out last year that's just kind of how the saga games are they're mechanically just weird games. And they deliberately um, hide a bunch of stuff behind the scenes and not able to be seen. Yeah, and, and there's no tutorials. And I mean, it just might be a manual, but it's not going to give you all the info you want. Um, the I will say the third game, Final Fantasy Legend 3, is the most unlike Saga and the most like, like a, a classic Final Fantasy. And that one you could play pretty much like a normal classic jrpg and probably and be okay but the first two especially two just weird games um i one of my friends on twitter actually sort of mentioned like this is great for people who have like played these games as a kid and just sort of i've already kind of come to accept what they are but there's absolutely no way i can recommend this to anyone else <laughs> sort of thing <laughs> um yeah so that's the type of game they are I, like i said i don't even know if i like these games they're just they are very unique you plan on replaying them through this now nah, you know i've already played them on the i already own the gb the game boy carts and i've already played them and i'm not really itching to play them again sort of thing so it's cool to have them i think at it's least cool available to be played uh, uh sean musgrave from touch arcade made the interesting point how it's like it's weird that nintendo switch you can play you'll soon be able to play the first three Saga games, Romancing Saga 2 and 3, but then like the early Final Fantasy games before 7 are just, you know, somewhere. They're not on Twitch. So, if you're looking for a very weird game that's not anything like Final Fantasy, look for a collection of Saga Final Fantasy Legend on Switch this December. There. I've done my diligence to try to sell the game. <laughs> Here is a topic that I think might be a James topic, but I'm not actually yeah. certain. <laughs> like, oh, he just admits it. Uh, so we have another uh, game coming to Switch that is, I hope I get this right, Taiko no Tatsujin Rhythmic Adventure Pack, which is a compilation of two rhythm RPGs coming this winter. So I have no idea what these games are. James, Okay. Right. So 
There were three 3DS Taiko no Tatsujin games that came out, and this is a collection of the latter two games. So, while they're calling it a rhythm RPG, most people that are going to play this game probably aren't going to touch the RPG mode. Basically, what the Taiko series has done for a while is that generally the home console like Taiko games will have like party modes and a bunch of stuff like that since it's very easy to like get multiple people playing on a single console. So for the handheld games, they've given them sort of story modes with uh, unique mechanics and in some cases RPG um, progression. Like, I remember playing the Vita version. There was, like, all sorts of note effects and, like, stats and whatnot. So, actually, we've played the second 3DS game. Haven't really touched the RPG mode. So, hopefully, we can review this and I can talk about it. So, that, that'll be fun. Um, not really much else to say. If you've played a Taiko no Tatsujin game, it's a Taiko no Tatsujin game. It's just it has a story mode, or I guess in this case, too. So that's interesting. I, I believe that the the uh, third game, the third 3DS game, actually has some Kirby songs and stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe. So. So I'm reading the press uh, release for this, and it it's using language that I wouldn't have expected. Like, it opens up saying, join Don Chan in two exciting RPG adventures. Like, that's what they open with. They call them RPG adventures. And then it talks about monsters and bosses. I believe, yeah, it's definitely accurate. I believe that at least one of the 3DS games, I'm not sure which, has like even like an overworld map and you like move around and stuff. It's interesting to say the least. So, yeah. So is it a rhythm game with RPG elements or is it an RPG with rhythm elements? Or is it neither of those things? It's a rhythm game with a story mode that's in the form of an RPG. And what, how does the rhythm, is it just like button presses or, or what? Yeah, so the way that Taiko Notatsujin works is that you have red notes and blue notes. And normally if you're playing it on a home console, and I guess they'll be able to do this on the Switch version, there are controllers that you can buy. And the way that the red notes work is that you drum the center of the drum. And for the blue notes, you drum the rim of the drum. And then there's like large red notes and large blue notes, which require you to drum both sides of that specific note. So if it's like a big red note, you need to drum both sides of the inner drum. And for a blue note, you need to drum both sides of the outer drum. So it's pretty simple. Like there isn't really that much inputs. And because of that, there's a lot of um, fast paced tracks just because the game expects you to be able to do those inputs a bit quicker because there's only a few of them, and especially if you have a drum, you can kind of, um, one thing that players that really get into the series like to do is they like to get their own, like, um, I forget what they're, my bocce, that's right. And you can get them for like 10, 15 bucks on Amazon. They're basically drumsticks, but they're specifically designed for the Taiko games so that they're a bit easier to use than the thick, uh, hauled out plastic drum, uh, bits that come with the drums that you can use on the Switch, PS4, etc. So is this, maybe, sorry if this is a dumb question, but like, is this Switch release? I don't see anything in here talking about like releasing a, a peripheral for it in terms of a drum control. Uh, yes, they're actually releasing the drum officially in the West now, I think. Like, I remember reading that they were, and uh, let me just double check. 
uh, Bandai Namco store because I remember hearing that they were putting a pre-order for it on the Bandai Namco store. So let's let's just double check really quick. Sorry about that. No, it's not. Uh, oh yeah, I'm looking yeah, at here it's up. Yeah, um, there's a pre-order for the Nintendo Switch Taiko no Tatsujin drum controller for some kind of cool. So yeah, but it's so, actually releasing. Uh, well. When's the release date for this? They said December. It just says winter. Winter, yeah. So the drum release date is is uh, November thirtieth. So probably around the time the game comes out, maybe a little bit before, because there is technically a uh, Taiko game out on Switch already. So makes sense. So this but, might uh, just yeah. show how poisoned my small little brain is. But when I think drum controller, like I cannot shake the image of like that Donkey Kong bongo for like that GameCube game. <laughs> Just like that's, that's probably completely unfair to this rhythm game, but that's just constantly what I'm thinking of. Oh man, but yeah, Taiko no Tetsujin Rhythmic Adventure Pack coming this winter with a drum controller. Here's another uh, James topic. We have a release date for East Nine Monstrum Knox. Uh, actually, okay, several release is... dates. Go ahead. I'll just I'll take the floor. So it's coming out February 2nd in North America and February 5th in uh, Europe. With uh, That's only for the PlayStation 4 and the PC and Switch versions are supposed to launch next summer. That's earlier than I was expecting, especially since um, Cold Steel 4 is supposed to be released in October. So that's only a four-month gap. Uh, hopefully that's... Because the last time something like this happened was with Feats 8, where it came out within a few weeks of... Um, Nongarapa V3, so it's like, I'm hoping that we don't have another E-State situation. Like, I, I do it's trust NES America. Yeah. yeah. I, I trust NES America a lot more now than, like, um, I would have this time last year, just because besides, like, one or two lines in Utoaru Mono, that was a perfectly fine translation, and obviously Cold Steel 3 was already a really a, a good translation at the, at the offset, and then they... Um, patched it up a bit later down the line. So it's like, it was already in good condition that yet they also went back to fix things up, which was nice. Uh, I can't really say too much about this just because, well, I've, I've already reviewed it. I've already played these. Right. We do have a, we do have an import review from James on the site. Uh, Yeah. I remember we had, we had a podcast like in February or March where we talked about if Nice America was going to have like an accelerated release schedule for these to get quote unquote caught up. And I don't know if what we're seeing now is that actually in action since we have Cold Steel 4 and late this year and then early next year we'll have East 9. I mean, I guess the math is is that these games released a year apart in Japan and they're releasing what four months apart in the West. So, so we're uh, one word, the PS4 version. Yeah. I, I would be absolutely shocked if, um, well, I'm pretty sure what they probably did is they probably had a team right now that's dedicated on Trails games. That would make sense, just to kind of make, especially with Cold Steel 4, you kind of want to have, I'm assuming that Cold Steel 4's translation was always going to go a bit faster, because, well, if you've just got finished with Cold Steel 3, you're probably more fami- intimately familiar with specific terms and whatnot, so things will go by a bit quicker just by that virtue. Um but again, that's just speculation. Well, also, also, there's this is also speculation, but I feel like once, just even on the back end, you know, like 
what dialogue in what areas of the game, how they work, like whether it's a uh, a, a context menu of a, of a battle or of a, a sub event or of a main cutscene, like you kind of know where they all fit in, so you can kind of know like what the pattern is and how they how they all have to work and what their individual constraints are. So of I guess the, uh, the um, outstanding the question is I... the uh, Kai versions of those uh, spell games. Yeah, I think I think those are going to be inevitable, especially with the way that Hajimari no Kiseki works out. They they need to bring Zero and Al over before they bring that over. So hopefully, hopefully they can manage to do so. That would be that would be nice. Um, kind of a tangent. It's incredibly odd, but like just earlier this week, Colin and I had a Discord meeting with folks from Nice America, and like all oh, this is like not embargoed anymore. And they just showed off like some gameplay of Cold Steel 4, some gameplay of Mad Rap Dead, and basically just released like show showcase news that we already knew, like when games were releasing. And yet they didn't share the release date. For East Nine, then, even though they just announced this like one or two days ago, so it's like, why didn't they just share that there? I'm so confused. Yeah. Usually, for those sort of events, they sometimes like this was like a day or two before they announced it officially, so it wasn't like a long time in advance. Usually, they well, you know, even just for like a practical purpose, like hey, we're releasing this game in February, so you can get your news articles kind of ready, sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I guess just, they, did, they didn't. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah, okay. just to be blunt, especially like, if, if this, if we had found out about this during that meeting thing, then at least there would have been something that m- would have made that meeting feel like it wasn't a waste of time because that didn't go well. <laughs> but, well, yeah. hopefully, it showed it allowed them to at least kind of get their bearings on what's possible as a digital only. Uh, that makes like, sense. Press that makes sense. But even then, that's kind of like it's not even a silver lining. It's a, a light gray lining. But <laughs> so when I when Cold Steel 3 came out, for whatever reason, I was like really excited for it. So I actually got it on PS4 without waiting for the uh, PC version. For whatever reason, for I know we're talking about Yeast, but it's hard not to talk about these two series in parallel. Um, I'll probably for both Cold Steel 4 and Yeast 9, I'll probably wait for the PC version. It's just yeah, especially the since, PC um, versions. Yeah, especially uh, since Peter Toman Durante is working on that, you know they're going to be in a good place. Yeah. So if if you're a PC or Switch version player, I bet like the PC version of Cold Steel Four will release in March sometime, or, you know, spring spring period, and then uh, East Nine will be in like summer. I don't know if the Switch, if Switch and PC will release at the same time this time. I'd imagine the case, it will but, because yeah. if you, from what I understand, Durante's um, team and the team that um, NIS have uh, brought on for Switch ports for uh, Cold Steel Three and Cold Steel Four, and I'm assuming East Nine. I think it's the same team for all three of those. Basically, are sharing code bases with Durante these days. So it's kind of like they're both working on this on a shared code base for Switch and PC, which is pretty pretty interesting. Nice to see that happen because it it makes sense because it means that these are going to be coming out quicker and also more unified and whatnot. But um, I liked these nine. I gave it a seven out of ten. Um, 
hopefully, well, I don't, I don't really have too much hope that the PS4 version is going to be notably better than it already is in uh, Japanese. Because one, one of your the, major hangups with it was its performance, right? Yeah, yeah. It's better nowadays, but it's still not anywhere near what it should be. Hopefully, Falcom's new engine can fix things up, because clearly, uh, I believe the uh, engine they use for Ease, um, Ease they call Yamaneka, there's some I don't know. And I, but, I can't, um, the, uh, just a reminder, the RPG site, 7 out of 10, is a above-average quality game. It's still very much worth playing. If you're an East fan, definitely don't feel like it's not worth playing because I gave it a 7 out of 10. It's worth playing, just it does have its own issues. And I, I think part of the reason why I was kind of disappointed in aspects of East 9, like, I, I'll just be perfectly clear. I think East 9's story is really, really good for the East series. And especially there's a few scenes I'm really excited to revisit with the English dub in particular. But then there's like some aspects where it's like, man, if only they had improved X, Y, and Z, this could have been like the best East game, which is always disappointing when you see that with a game where it's like, man, if only just these little things have been improved. Crystal Chronicles. Yeah, well, Crystal I was gonna Chronicles. say like, yeah, where you can see the potential and it's evident, and you and you just see where it missed. Yeah. But yep, uh, coming out. What was the date on that again? February 2nd or yep. 5th or 12th or later if you're playing on a different platform. <laughs> this next topic, I have to eat a little bit of pro on. Not, not a big one, but I thought that for whatever reason, that Monster Hunter World was going to be kind of well supported for a good deal longer. But we have learned over the last week that the fifth and final free update is coming to the game on October 1st, adding the dungeon, or sorry, adding the dragon, Fatalis, which uh, I assume, again, if you've listened to any of these podcasts, you know that I am the newcomer and James is the veteran. So James, tell me about Fatalis. Uh, a lot of his moves one-shot you, you can't cut his tail, it's a lie, and go for the head. <laughs> so it seems like a suitable final dragon. For the yeah. Game. Um, his name is Fatalis. Yeah, one note about the support for Monster Hunter World. Like, they, from the offset, like, of base game, they said they would support it with, like, one year or so of free title updates. And then with Ice Form, they said they would aim to, like, do the same. So they basically kept up with their word. And I'm sure that if uh, COVID hadn't happened and they hadn't had to delay Alatrion, this update would probably be releasing in a week or so because just based off of the timing of TGS and whatnot, and what seems to be an upcoming Switch Monster Hunter, just, like, everyone's, like, assuming. There's a lot of scuttlebutt um, about a Switch Monster Hunter being shown soon. Yeah, it would make sense to be shown off at TGS, and generally they don't like to show off a new game series before they're done with the current one. So I'm assuming that they originally wanted this content to be coming out next month instead of October, so... But uh, yeah, all things considered, I think they've done a kind of an admiral job of sticking relatively close to their planned roadmaps that they put on. Yeah, because we've seen we've seen cases where that's not been true. Yeah, like Capcom has done an excellent job, except with the problem with the PC version for Iceborne being delayed. Which yeah, that was that was admittedly a step back where they were. I'd say that was like the one. 
I'd say major blemish with the way that Capcom has supported Monster Hunter World because they've been relatively, well, basically completely consistent with adding new monsters, new types of event quests and the like. And uh, it, it's funny because normally I don't like to buy like microtransactions in games, but the way that even like Capcom handled those where it was just like, you can buy pendants, you can buy stuff like monster uh, models for your room. You can buy like music for your room. And it's like, Stuff that outfits for your handler. Yeah, it's stuff that's like not that expensive. It's like two or three bucks. And it's literally just cosmetics. Oh, that so, reminds me of something I didn't bring up but is very topical. Uh Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles Remastered Edition has pay to win weapons. You buy a weapon and it is better than anything in the base game. Ugh. <laughs> it's like, of course it does. But anyways, I think the most important thing about this Fatalis update, and I'm not sure if you'd agree, Brian. But the Palico armor. Uh, I actually haven't seen it. Oh, it's a little dragon. Basically, when you equip the Palico armor, your cat becomes a mini Fatalis, and their their weapon is literally they're holding a mini hunter that is brandishing a great sword, and they swing that. Oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. cool. My, uh, my Palico is yeah, wearing cool. the uh, Pooky Pooky armor that they added a week. Or not oh, in the last update. Uh, but yeah, this uh, they also talked a little bit about some of the other little uh, smaller things that they're going to be adding outside of this big Fatalis update, uh, like a new festival, uh, the Fright Fest, basically Halloween themed, uh, a couple new arch tempered dragons, or actually specifically Velcana, and then a difference in uh, a boost to the Clutch Claw so that monsters will be able to be weakened easier and then um, more a uh, layered armor options because a lot of the layered armor options are low and high rank and now it sounds like they're really going to start rounding out with uh, mastered rank options. Which Here's a random question, but kind of oddly enough, this final title update is adding an entirely new character to the game, like the general. The general, yeah. Yeah, and it's, he's voiced and everything... Um, I wonder if that's like a teaser for uh, maybe it's not like a character that's going to be in the next next gen Monster Hunter or something like that. What, they, it seems very, what, are the very odd. what are the different titles? They've got like the commander. They've got the commander. Is... They've got the tracker. They've got the well, they've got admiral. The, then, and then like the new commander, the younger one, like the commander in training, and now the general. <laughs> like, kind of there are there. no characters with names in Monster Hunter. Very clearly. And then you've got the so handler I'm not very, and I'm not, then the serious I'm not, handler. I'm not very Go familiar ahead. with Monster Hunter, but the fact that this character is just like, you know, this big black guy in a Monster Hunter game, she's like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, I actually um, rem- remembered seeing, well, seeing a bunch of people, especially around Iceborne's launch, they apparently added a bunch of like hairstyles that were like actually proper representation of. Uh, um, black uh, hairstyles and, like people were like really happy about that so it's actually really neat to see them add like an actual like important well i mean not that the story is like a huge deal in monster hunter ever but it's neat to see that there's this new character that's a black dude that takes a central role in this title update and maybe it's a sign of things to come to the next monster hunter which would be pretty cool i'm excited to see what they do with the switch monster hunter even if it's obviously smaller in scope and a little bit more like side gamey i think i'm still i don't know maybe maybe i'm i'm into i will dump another 1000 hours into whatever that switch monster hunter is 
<laughs> Which, by the way, I did pass 1,000 hours this week. <laughs> oh, crazy. I, I guess I should have a disclaimer that uh, we don't know anything. You're just about 800 hours yourself. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, though, it's uh, I some of that is because I lost my file because I was dumb and I had to restart. But yeah. Oh, and to, in order to fight Fatalis, you have to defeat Electrion at least once. So there you go. Good luck. Like we were talking about MMO raids earlier, and I'd say that Electrion's it has like actual mechanics that would fit in place with a, any MMO out there with like DPS checks and like yeah, heal, like mitigation and whatnot. Which is interesting. Wonder if Fatalis is going to have anything like that because I know that he was like a sort of siege fight kinda in the older games. I wonder if they're going to add anything that's similar to what they did with Latreon for uh, better or worse. I like how Latreon fights in World, but I know that it's a very uh, contentious uh, change they gave to him. Which I yeah. it, it, I think we talked about this earlier, but yeah, we did during can the Latreon updates. Can I admit my state of being a neophyte here um they said that for the fatalis fight there's going to be like ballista and like cannon catapults and some other you know like siege weaponry sort of stuff scatter around that you use in the fight is that normal or not that's normal for fatalis okay so that's not they mentioned how that's there okay yeah in in the very in the main game of monster hunter their uh world anyways there's this dragon called Zora Magdaros, and he has not fought like a typical dragon. He's fought with cannons, with ballista, with like harpoons. And long story short, a lot of people don't like it at all because it's basically like you learn how to fight with your weapon. And now here's a fight that completely doesn't use any of those mechanics at all. So I'm hoping and yeah. I, I would expect that it's a safe guess that for Fatalis, they're not going to lean so heavily into that. It'll just be kind of like an additional like phase where you use cannons or ballistas and then you fight them in an arena with your weapons. Yeah, I feel like it's worth noting that for Zora Magnaros that there have been siege fights in previous Monster Hunters that people actually generally liked, like the Jen Moran fight and Try. So it's kind of, it was incredibly disappointing that the major siege fight that they had, I think the only real siege fight they had in the world was such a disappointment and so universally disliked, for good reason, I'd add. So. Did you have something, uh, George? Not. But I'm pretty sure that is where I tapered off. I think I got to that fight. I really didn't like how it changed stuff up. I think I, I must have failed it a few times and I just I, I never found a way around it, I think. I remember when that fight first had an arc tempered version. I thought like it could actually make it interesting and it just made it worse. Well so I'd argue counts. the arc tempered version is better in the sense that it's no longer a cakewalk. So yeah, you're not doing regular stuff, but at least you're being forced to actually think about what you do instead of just mindlessly like loading cannonballs, shooting it at it, waiting until it's like, the Dragonator's ready, okay, bonk, we're done. Press the button, there you go. So I mean, yeah, it doesn't improve the base mechanics, but at least just by making it harder, it forces you to actually think, which I would argue makes the fight at least a little bit better. We also got a surprise announcement earlier this week that Guild Wars 2 is coming to Steam in November. And it's also got a new teaser for its next expansion called End of Dragons. So I clearly am the one on this panel that has played the most Guild Wars 2. 
So I'm excited for the expansion, but more generally, I'm just excited to see that the studio is alive and kicking because ArenaNet, the developers of Guild Wars in early 2019 had a bunch of layoffs. They lost their game director and their president to other studios. So it was very like depressing times, like on the forums. This is the only game they really support. Um, so the fact that they're able to bounce back from that, say, I lived, bitch, and then go and say, here's another expansion. I'm more excited just to know that they're doing that more than being excited for the expansion itself. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, so Brian, like, for Guild Wars 2, is it just like you buy the base game, then buy the latest expansion, you have access to everything? Or do you have to buy each expansion? This is something that I actually think that they might come into, like, bad user reviews on Steam. So for the lion's share of the game, if you, you it's the base game is free to play with restrictions, kind of like Final Fantasy's new trial, where you can't, like, form parties on your own and you can't whisper because that's just to combat, like, bots making a bunch of free accounts and spamming people and then you buy the you buy the current expansion path of fire and it gives you all the expansion content released so far for usually it's 29.99 but the thing is is that um while final fantasy does these like 0.1.2.3 releases guild wars does these episode releases and they work that they're free if you log in while they're live like while they're active but if you don't, you have to pay the in-game currency to get them. So the analog would be like having to pay AC and uh, Fantasy Star. And I could see if someone if someone buys this game on Steam, then they buy the expansion for $29.99 and they think they have everything. And then they realize they're going to go into the in-game cash shop and realize that they're being, quote unquote, like nickel and dime for all the different like live expansion updates, like the live story stuff. I could see that getting really sour really fast. So How expensive hope... is it in in-game currency? Like, do you have to grind for it? Or if you're just like playing the game normally, would it be all that hard to actually buy that stuff? If you're starting from a new character, it'd be expensive. If you're starting from an existing character, it wouldn't be so bad. That's assuming you already have all your gear. You don't need, to, you, you don't need the in-game currency for anything else. Um, but if you're starting from level one, level two, it's going to be undoable. So, so just I'm hoping clear. that for the Steam release that they somehow repackage so that that live update is included in the expansion price. Or it's like another bundle where you buy the expansion for $29.99 and then you buy like the living world unlock for 15 bucks or something like that, where they just put it all under one banner. Cause otherwise I feel like it's going to just be really sour. Did you have a question? If I tried Guild Wars 2, would you try Final Fantasy 14? No. Ooh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) I, yeah. I'm going to make it a running joke with this podcast. (laughs) I'm okay with that. But um, I just think, so Arena is also working on a single player RPG, which I'm excited for, just because all they've ever made in like their 16, 17 year history are Guild Wars games. So I'm really excited to kind of see them branch out from that. Kind of like how Riot has, only on a smaller scale. I just think, and I'm biased, I know, but I think it's just kind of good for the for competition's sake to have a little bit of a smaller fish in the in the pool because they're up against Blizzard and Square Enix and Bethesda with ESO and things like that. So to have someone else throwing their hat in the ring with another option, I just think is good to have. So obviously, as a smaller studio, they can't do as much as quickly. 
but I'd rather this is a preferable alternative to them shuttering or being fully absorbed by NCSoft, their publisher, after all the struggles they had in the last couple of years. But um, it'll be interesting to see whether their newest expansion <clears throat> does anything differently than their last ones to try to break into the space that is kind of so clearly occupied by Final Fantasy and World of Warcraft, or if they're going to kind of remain on their slightly more casual slant that they've been for, for a while now. So we really don't know any details about exactly how it's uh, framed or like if it like if it's going to be in the same style as the other expansions or formatted differently. It's a bit different also because their last expansion, they announced it like a month before releasing it. They announced Path of Fire like in August and then released it in September. But now it's like a year away. So it's kind of like a please be excited. Please keep logging in. We have something in the pipeline. <laughs> so maybe a little bit desperate and some people might say a steam release is also desperate but i think it's just kind of smart because eso is there final fantasy 14 is there to be fair guild wars 2 has been out since 2012 and it's still being updated that is that alone it's just like this game is a success you know how many mmos last for eight years like there's a lot that falter so that's pretty good <laughs> Well, a lot of the reasons for their layoffs in 2019 were they tried and they tried to get other projects off the ground, but for whatever reason or another, they just failed. They just couldn't get anything else out the door. Yeah, apparently so they're working on a mobile game, and then that never happened. And you know, if you're there's apparently some other project that never you know lifted off. And if you're gonna when you donate or dedicate so much time and resources to a game, that then you get nothing out of it. Yeah, it's gonna lead to problems. And like you could kind of feel if you played Guild Wars that they were pulling like you, you actually we actually were talking with um, Alex Donaldson about this last night just in a casual chat about how Final Fantasy fourteen in a smaller sense might be pulling people off to work on other projects in their series. Uh, where Guild Wars, it was absolutely evident that that's what they were doing, and then to get nothing out of it, it's just like if you're a Guild Wars two player, that just sucks because you had to deal with those shortcomings, and there's nothing to show for it. So I'm excited for this more in principle than in like actuality, if that makes sense. But maybe once more details start trickling in over the next year, uh, it'll actually become a little bit more enthusiastic. I'm just glad. Now, I I did play the original Guild Wars, and I do recognize that this update is a callback to the Cantha Factions region, um, which is sort of like the Asian-styled place of the original yeah, game. There's very much a kind of a nostalgia grab there. Like, hey, do you remember Guild Wars Factions from 2006? This is in the same region. So there is a little bit there where they're like trying to bank on that, which I'm, I think that's okay because a lot of in, a lot of longtime fans. Were I mean, it was like more than 10 years ago. So it's not like it's they're like, you know, it's not like they're uh, what's the word overdoing it. <laughs> Well, supposedly there were actually like real world political issues because they used like a bunch of like mixed Asian architecture and design where like something is inspired by Korean uh, design, something is Chinese, something's Japanese. And apparently if you're not careful, that can be like really problematic for lack of a better word. And then they released Guild Wars 2 in China. So uh, yeah, basically they had to be really careful about it in ways that I guess we can only really speculate about. But I guess they must have found some way to make it work. So they're going back and revisiting kind of that region of the world in their universe. 
But I'm more excited for their unannounced single player game for whatever reason. Even though I have really no reason to be, it's I guess it's just more the devil you don't know. So we'll see if that ever crops up uh, next year alongside new information about End of Dragons. And then as a last topic, we're going to revisit something from last week, which if you listened to our podcast last week, you heard Adam and I be kind of lukewarm on the surprise announcements of Gotham Knights. And we were like, man, if only George was here. Well, guess and now what? I am. George is here. <laughs> so this was announced uh, just basically a week ago today. So what, what was your takeaway on the Gotham Knights reveal? I will say this. Uh, I am infinitely more excited for both Gotham Knights and Suicide Squad than I am for the Avengers. And that comes out in like a week. A week? Yeah. A week. Um, it just... I, I'm, I'm going to do this sort of quickly. I, I'm not going to go into like Melody of Memory level detail here, but Thank God. they both look really I'm cool. Um, Suicide Squad less so because it's just a conceptual trailer and like gameplay-wise it could like falter but it already has a sort of personality of its own, which I like. Um, so that the reason I mentioned that one is because it's rumored to be like Avengers games as a service, which means I will likely want to talk about it in the future. Uh, there's not much to say right now. It's a continuation of the Arkhamverse, which is really surprising because like, I kind of thought that they'd continue that universe by going to do like a Superman, <clears throat> excuse me, a Superman game of some kind, but they've just kind of, kind of done the reverse where they're like no we, we don't want to do superman in fact we don't want to do superman so much that you're probably going to kill superman or like at least take him down uh and the prospect of a game that shows the justice league not having you play as them like sounds bad but imagine like taking on superman as a boss fight like it's so hard to do him right as a character itself because he's really like stupidly overpowered but like take him on as a boss that sounds really cool um there's there's so long until this game comes out uh 2022 that we really don't know much about it weird because it feels like it's inevitable that's going to be compared to avengers but it seems like they're trying to like make it clear how they're different how this is a two-player co-op game i think it only goes up to two how it's not going to be as is that not true gotham Gotham knights is two player suicide's got is four player oh yeah i was talking about gotham knight Oh yeah, then yeah, completely. Like, I, I think it's quite cheeky them actually to be like, oh yeah. So you know that Avengers game that's coming out in like a couple of weeks that people are sort of excited for. Uh, here's this Batman game everyone's wanted for years that does like similar stuff but looks <laughs> a bit more exciting. Like, and we're not and we're, I, I we're, we're not gonna at least not announce right now paid uh, pass passes oh, for God. each character. Can't believe we didn't talk about this. Yeah, that is ridiculous. Although apparently. I've I've seen people defend it online. We've we've somehow moved on to Avengers, but I've seen people defend it online that you can also use in-game credits, and like maybe they're easy to earn. We'll we'll see when it comes out next week. But as it stands right now, the fact that that's being announced before a week before launch is disgusting and just just really indicative of the the marketplace of that it, game. It's just, it's like the most games as a service game it could possibly be. Which maybe yeah, is I, fine, but it's just like, man, you got to really be into that. Idea. Yeah, we, we 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 will see because uh, I 
I have obviously been the one who's like, yeah, no, this could be awesome. And then I think everyone's sort of seen my interest slowly be chipped away at. Like when I, when I actually played it, I enjoyed it, but like bit by bit, the controversies have made me go, oh man. <laughs> anyway, it's, Gotham Knights uh, looks really cool. The gameplay that we saw, we're, they're weirdly calling this an action RPG, um, which I don't think anyone predicted. Like I've seen all the predictions before. About how it's going to be about the Bat Family, Court of Owls, yada yada. Oh, yeah. But no, we actually one, talked about no this got... uh, last week uh, when you weren't here. How Marvel, we were kind of like, do we cover this? It's just not. It's not really an RPG. It's not really our purview. And slowly but surely, we're like, yeah, I guess it kind of fits. And then Gotham Knight kind of took all the question work out of it, where they're like, yep, action RPG in the press release. Yep. Like, oh, Which I love. Okay. I, I love that. I have to make a case. <laughs> um, and looking at the gameplay. It doesn't really look like it plays so much like the other ones because all of the enemies have like a like a a, a number like they've all, they're all leveled and they'll take like numbered damage, which is the sort of thing that would like really scare the shit out of me if you told me that before the footage. But well, those are, those, seeing those how are the only two things you need for an RPG, right? You need enemy levels and you need damage floaters. <laughs> that's that's the only it criteria. Means I can talk about it, so you know what? It's fine. But they've recently said in an interview. Uh, I think two days ago, so this is almost sort of relevant. Uh, that it is like entirely built to be you can play it on your own, they are not going to gate off stuff for you, like it, it can just be played like a single player game if you want. And I know a lot of things have said that, like I'm sure they've said that about Avengers too. Like, I, 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 reading it, I was like, yeah, I think that this is still going to stick to what made the other games good as well. It just looks like it's got a really cool story premise with some really cool uh, potential villains and i love the fact that it is focusing on the bat family uh i saw this trailer and i was instantly like please can we talk about this like i really want to cover this this game looks amazing and i, I guess we are i and think for what though i'm not worth, a uh, sorry go ahead adam for what it's worth um warner brothers montreal has pretty much they've said outright like this game is not a games for service or games as a service game like they really have tried to distance themselves from that i think people sort of assumed it was because of rumors and because of avengers but they kind of just have said like no it's pretty much just a co-op game like you can play the whole game in single player but we also wanted to incorporate a co-op element into it so that that is what the game is it's like a cooperative action rpg and with loot and such, but not games as a service. That's how they are trying to position so it. We'll, we'll have to. We'll have to. Like the jury's out to see if that's lip service or if that's how true. Mm-hmm. To what extent that is true. I'm more excited for this. Is what I was going to say is that when I heard that, I am more naturally excited for it because I love co-op games. And if if it's not going to be baked in service systems that are going to take forever to grind through, it just makes me more excited. Speaking of games that don't take forever of your life to 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 progress back to the mortal shell being 10 hours argument so i know i said that i'm not super keen on superhero games but if i was going to pick one between the three recent ones that were announced or coming out soon it'd probably be uh, gotham knights yeah i i wholeheartedly agree um we will see with the avengers very soon and we'll see with gotham knights uh, next year Bless hopefully you. not yeah. too far into it exciting 
So that covers anything I had listed. Uh, there are a couple other things we've seen, like uh, at one of the Gamescom opening digital events, we got a small glimpse at Dragon Age work, but a little bit of behind the scenes, a little bit of concept on their characters. But other than that, I don't know if there's really a whole lot to latch onto other than it's in progress. I guess that's, we'll keep it, we'll leave it there. Dragon Age is still being worked on. <laughs> Did any has anyone seen any like indie game footage from some of these GameCom streams that stuck out to them in any way? Just curious. The uh, the one that looks like a like a Sega Saturn game. Uh, oh, what is it? Let me let me scroll down our feed here to find it. While while Brian does that, I will just quickly point out uh, one Ratchet and Clank looks awesome. Adam, help me out here. I don't know what you're referring to. It's, uh, man, I'm trying to find it. There, there was. That's the thing about these. Is sometimes there's so many that you see, you see like a GIF of one, a GIF of one. And like, man, that looks interesting, <laughs> but it doesn't like register, or like implant itself into my brain. Oh, it's like it looks like a 16-bit, 32-bit Chrono Trigger like turn-based RPG. I still don't know what you're referring to. I'm thinking of Sea of Stars, but I don't think that's actually been shown during uh, uh, Gamescom. But there was like a Sakuna of Rice and Ruin like little gameplay thing, and that game has been in the works for a while, and it looks really nice. Um, I know some people are really excited for this Magic School RPG Ikenfell, or Ikenfell, I guess it's pronounced. Um, it looks like the Mario and Luigi games. That series is now dead, so here you go. Um, it's not dead, <laughs> but the Alpha Dream is filed for bankruptcy. I'm not sure what's come out from that. Uh, there's a new trailer for Chris Tales, which oh, Chris looks Tales really nice. Yeah, it's got... Um, they've done a lot of demos for it. There's a new demo out now on pretty much every platform. They revealed two more characters, uh, like a robot electric punch boy and a green-haired girl who seems to have bombs. Uh, and yeah, there's we also you know, got lots of indie RPGs. We also got confirmation that... Um... Genshin Impact is releasing on PS4 alongside the PC and mobile versions. Is that not already you... known? It wasn't known last yeah. week, was it? Well, we I, didn't I, know the... I assumed, I guess. We knew the PC and mobile release date, and then they 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 held off on the PS4 release date announcing it. But it turns out it's the same date. Did you find what you were looking? Yes, for? I did. I, I did. Were... I was waiting for. I was waiting for you to finish. Uh, it was Chained Echoes. It's one of those uh, like two two generic names slapped together, but it, it looks neat. It, it looks like a uh, SNES, Sega Saturn sort of um, RPGable. SNES, SNES. I say SNES. I know it's a bit silly. That's what I say. Um, SNES. And then the the only other piece of news that's not quite listed on here is that there was an FAQ posted on the Fantasy Star webpage that talked a little bit about answering questions about how New Genesis worked. And the main takeaway, there's a lot of detail there that's a little bit very specific. You have to kind of be baked into the game to to know what they're even asking. But it's going to be a part of Fantasy Star. Like almost, It's almost as if they're describing one client where you log in and then pick which version of the game you want to play. And then like a lot of things will carry between original Fantasy Star Online 2 I think- and Fantasy Star Online 2 Genesis, New Genesis. Go ahead. I think that's literally what they're doing. It's one client, and you just choose which version to hop into. 
because they're even saying that if you're in like New Genesis and like your friend is in like regular fantasy story, you can actually message each other in game. So. so it is. So it is not Fantasy Star Online three. Uh, it's kind of its own well, thing. I don't know. If, I don't know if there's like a good analog for exactly um, how this is really. From what I understand, really understand the whole reason, basically, not only are they making new Genesis, but they're also remake or I guess remastering slash remaking regular PSO two to the new engine. So that's why they're able to do this. So. Like, I've heard people say, oh, it's like A Realm Reborn if the original Final Fantasy XIV never shut down. But it's more like if A Realm Reborn happened, then the original fourteen was still around, but in the Realm Reborn engine, which uh, it's okay. weird. It's weird. And so I thought that explains it a bit better. Main, yeah, I don't know if there's like a good game out there right now that is working quite like this. Maybe, I don't know if RuneScape to RuneScape 2 way back when was like this, maybe. I, my memory's foggy on that. But the one of the main caveats that i saw some people kind of bristle at is that fantasy star online 2 new genesis will have a different main currency it won't be Meseta; it'll be something else which i actually am 100 percent on board with because otherwise people who have been playing since march or whatever will have like millions of gold walking into this newer game with a huge leg up on people that are just simply waiting for it and don't want to get into the base game so having a different currency pool i think is actually really fair and smart um, also, like, even though I've only played up to, like, level 60 in PSO2, like, you get Meseta so easily, like, so, so easily. Yeah, speaking of economy, like we were earlier on the podcast, I'm not sure that Fantasy Star Online 2 is in a great place because the you can't buy gold directly in-game. Well, you can through, like, shady sellers and bots, but, but what you can basically do, if you are inclined, is that you, you buy the pay currency the ac which i actually forget what that stands for right now um and then you use that to 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 use the raffle tickets to get items and then you just sell those on the player shop for gold so it has like this two-step way where you can just turn your credit card into in-game gold so the economy is not really bad. not to mention you have to use like i'm not sure if it's ac or sg but one of the two you actually need to use in order to even be able to sell stuff on the marketplace so yeah so I wonder if New Genesis's system is going to just be designed in a very different way where it's it's not just going to be Seta only it's a different color. It might actually work very differently. We really don't know yet. Uh, but yeah, just some details there. There's some questions that are very specific that I'm like, who is asking this? Like, will our, <laughs> will our character models be able to move their individual fingers in New Genesis? I'm like, yeah, we'll have, <laughs> and we'll have some poses and some emotes that use this technology. And I'm like, that's Can't nice. Wait for guess. The asking <laughs> yeah. Um, they talked about how like the different simple arts that you can. So one of, one of the, one of the things that is kind of characteristic of fantasy star online too, is that you can kind of use these simple arts where basically instead of chatting out text, you can chat out like memes and gifs. Well, not gifs, but like images of like, uh, yeah, gifs, snes, gifs. (laughs) You can pillory me, pillory me later. Uh, but like, apparently like you can carry over your symbol art from one game to the other. If you've got like a silly meme that you like to spam chat with, you can you can keep that in New Genesis. I'm like, okay, that's that's nice for those people who that who are really concerned about that, I suppose. <laughs> so lots of really particular questions on there, but yeah, that's up on. I don't think we've covered it on our site, but it's up on the uh, official Fantasy Star Online Two site. Some of the details about what is carrying over between the original, the base game, and the New Genesis version next year. 
And with that, I think we've covered everything. So this was actually like a really good diverse topics podcast compared to last week where we just kind of pushed through everything and didn't have much to talk about. Uh, I thought we talked about more Tim Town Online. Yeah, definitely more of a MMO tint with uh, this podcast, which makes sense with the stuff in the news this week. Yeah, I want the headline uh, of this podcast to be Toontown. And then, and then just <laughs> put, put Kingdom Hearts in the subtitle and everything else is just where it is. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, we will have the, we have the video up for Crystal Chronicles on our YouTube page. We have the review for Crystal Chronicles as well as with Mortal Shell up on our website. You can always follow us on Twitter at RPG site. You can always follow us on uh, Facebook at RPG site net. If you go to our main site, you can find our discard with a link at the top of the page. And we will be back next week with another podcast and we'll see what topics come up for us to talk about then. But as always, uh, take care. See you next time. Bye, everyone. Later.